Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. Wonderful things happen when your life falls apart, your personal life. Um, when soulmates come and go. At the time, you know, I wanted to roast these boys over the fire, but now I see it quite differently in the sense that it's given me freedom. I don't prowl. I don't prowl the night looking for boy blood like I was doing for a while. Hey everybody, you're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts, I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Cotolite Sneeze from Tori's third album, Boys for Pele. Why are you giving me that look? I'm scared. I'm excited, but mostly scared. I'm feeling the pressure because you already informed me, given the magnitude of this song, there's no time for small talk. So don't even like ask me how I'm doing as Good if point. you care. Uh, you're right. I like, said no banter on this episode, we David. No one has time. We for, have business to take care of on this episode. It's time to stop being polite. Right. And start, and start getting real. Yeah. Hi, everybody. You're hey. listening to Drive All Night, and we are here talking about one of Tori's seminal, I would say, seminal tracks called White Sneeze. Yep. Yeah. Huge. Um, where does this song rank for you, David? Number three, sometimes number two. Sometimes Pretty Good Year and Cotolite Sneeze can kind of elbow each other out of the way, uh-huh. but probably two. It's so good. Yes. And because we're talking about it today, I'm all, I'm all juiced up about it, so it gets number two today. Juiced up. He's on uh, Sneezeroids. Yep. <laughs> um, so you would say this is in your top three. Top three. Damn. Mm. You go, girl. <laughs> so this song is instrumental in bringing a whole legion of new fans into the Toriamus community. Um, this song marks a huge turning point in Tori's career. First single from the first self-produced record, a whole different sound. Where does the song fall for you, though? Let's not just gloss over that. This song is so important to me in my Tory fandom, Mm -hmm. because though I came in at Little Earthquakes, this song was the first time that I I heard something and immediately just was like, wow, this is everything. This is this is everything. You know what I mean, obviously. Not as it pertains to this song. That is not my experience of Cotillite Sneeze. I love Uh it now. I'm a little surprised that that was your experience and... I mean, I know that this was sort of a, a pivotal moment in her career in ter- terms of commercial success and, and new fandom, but um, yeah, that was not my experience at all. And I know that this received a lot of radio play, but I don't remember that at really? the time. And I can't believe that this, of all the songs, like really, uh, the first single, lead single on a harpsichord, and it's so not commercial, so not 
I guess we were at a time in like the 90s alternative music scene when this was able to cross over and people actually responded to the song and went and sought out her work. That's that's I love the fact that that's true, but it's crazy to me. And especially cuz that was just not my experience. So, to me this is like the strongest hook on the album. Maybe nothing's going to stop me from floating being mm. a close second mm-hmm. to me, but as far as hooks go, it sounds so so industrial prog rock to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it really fit into the milieu of the time, I Mm -hmm. think. That makes sense to me, especially in terms of single choice, because unless you went with a ballad like Hey Jupiter, there really wasn't any other choice. Right. So to be fair, everything that was released after this, Tallulah, Jupiter, Widow, and Voodoo all had remixes released. Mm -hmm. So this was the only proper track released from the album as it was on the album. True. In the way that it appeared on the album Mm -hmm. is what I mean. Right. Um, what was your experience with Codalite's News? Oh, well, I'm, I was already a Tory fan. Um, I did not have internet access at the time. So I knew she had a new album out strictly based on my frantic phone calls to the RDT newsline. Right, That's right. where I first heard the track listing and all of that. So, I mean, I certainly knew that there was a single coming out, but I didn't know what the street date was or whatever. I think I was just at Tower Records, as I frequently was you know, pawing through the Tory bin, hoping I would one day find something new in there. And sure enough, Throwing I did. And I was like, what is this? And I pulled it out and held it up to the sky. And, you know, it, it was it a Codalite Sneeze single? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Which version? There are three versions of the single release. There was the US edition. Maxi 5. Yeah, the Maxi 5. Yeah. And there were two UK, a limited edition UK double single set, which had all the same songs plus one additional one. Yeah. So you pulled it out of the bin. Yeah. Which version? The the US five? Yeah, that was the only one they had. There was no UK import. Yeah, so it was definitely Did you the cry. I I had no idea what it would sound like. I had not heard the song. All I had was the title, and um, I was <laughs> with my dad. Got the single, and I knew we were going to eat after. And I had like no way to listen to it uh-huh. until I got home. And I was like, "Are you kidding me? I have to sit through a meal with you before I can go <laughs> home and listen to this new Tory single." At the time, I was definitely responding more to Tory ballads. Uh So I was, for some reason, hoping that it would be a ballad or something like piano only, which wouldn't make any sense because it was obviously going to be that album's version of like a God or a Cornflake Girl or whatever the closest version of that was, which it But you were young, you didn't realize that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I got home and popped it in and I I don't really remember what my first reaction was other than initial disappointment because I was hoping for a ballad and it sounded... Yeah, it sounded very different. There was, of course, the harpsichord and the programmed industrial beat, and I did not have the lyrics. So I thought when she was saying Mr. St. John, I thought she was saying Mr. Satan. Like, (laughs) Mr. Satan. So between that and I knew there was a song called Father Lucifer, Uh. I was like, what? Tori, what's happening? And there was that promo photo of her with, like, the fake tattoo, which I didn't know was fake. So I was like, something has happened. And I don't don't know what it is. (laughs) You look very earnest. I see see young you. I'm I'm back there, back in that place. Like, I'm powerless to help. But so what? (laughs) What was, do you remember the first time you heard the song? Absolutely. Yes, I sure do. Um, let me read this little quote. Ready? It's not really a quote. It's more of a press release. Tori Amos, web exclusive. On Monday, December 11th, you can become one of the very first to hear Caudalite Sneeze, the debut single from Tori Amos's highly anticipated third album, Boys for Pele. We will be broadcasting Tori's song in its entirety right here on the Atlantic website using Progressive Network's brand new Real Audio version 2.0 technology. Sneeze will be the first full song ever ever to be previewed prior to its official release using Real Audio 2.0. 
To hear Tori's song, you will first need to download the real audio player, click your heels three times, <laughs> run the vacuum, hang up the other line, available now from the Progressive Network's website. The player will enable you to hear the song instantly without downloading. For those without the player, we will also be providing conventional 30-second AIFF and WAVE formats, sound clips. Boys for Pele hits the streets January 23rd. Keep checking Atlantic's news and events page for more exclusives to come. I don't know how or why, who graced me with the wherewithal to check the computer whenever I did, but I had that information, the knowledge that this was coming out on a specific day, I had that prior. And you had internet access? I accessed the single from school. Really? Yes. Yes, I did. You did get an education. <laughs> I, the miseducation. <laughs> the only thing I ever junior. learned. <laughs> exactly. But real, that was a form of streaming, right? The, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Had to down, like, you had to go through the whole thing. You had to download it. It was like a big deal. Yeah. So I heard it at school. So you knew it was happening. You went to listen to it. Like yes. that was your intention. We had like, like not that many computers in the school, but there was one in Mrs. Comer's classroom and she had a creative writing magazine of which I was a literary editor. So I did a lot of work on that computer. I don't know if I was sneaking around trying to do it. I can't remember that part if like I didn't want anybody to know. But eventually everybody knew because I was playing it in the classroom. On, on whatever date that is, December 11th. Yes. Yes, Queen. You cranked it in class like you didn't have headphones. Well, you, were you like, can't really care. crank it in class. But I played it in the classroom and it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. So what were your expectations before you heard the song or your hopes and dreams? Before I heard the song, Mrs. Comer told me when she found out the title, Caudalite Sneeze, she told me that that is a metaphor for having an orgasm. Mrs. Comer? Mrs. Comer, yeah. I mean, we were all very open because I was a literary editor and I was worldly beyond my years. I was already out of the closet. I, there was nothing she could shock me with. Wow. I was like one of the most worldly at my school. Thank you. How did she say it? Did she like... She said that Ben Johnson, uh, some famous poet, I can't remember, had described having an orgasm as sneezing, as catching a little sneeze. Oh, so she made it classy. She was like, you know, the famous yeah, like, poet. The one of the romantics. Mm. She wasn't British. But yes. So that was my story of hearing... <laughs> God lights things for the first time. Yes. Um, and I was sold. I was it. That was done. Yeah. For the rest of my life. Here I am. 22 <laughs> years later. Um, and that was on December 11th. So about the web single, you want to hear something else that I think is funny? Tell me. Tori was asked on WXRT Chicago on the 1st of February, 1996. Someone said to her, I understand that that song, God lights things, was actually released initially on the internet, on the Atlantic Records website. And Tori said, yeah. And Frank says... I think it was the first song ever released that way. To which Tori responded, I wouldn't know about that because I don't know much about what goes on. Does anybody here know? And then Frank says, uh-oh, isn't anyone online in here? And Tori says, I'm sure there is. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. There are people online. Such paranoia. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> but I think it's, it just, to me, strikes me as really funny that, like, this is a huge deal in the world of music. It was this online download that gave birth to other online downloads. Mm -hmm from other artists that eventually gave birth to Napster, that eventually gave birth to, you know, everything that you could, that we are now, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was really progressive, I thought. Obviously, this is a marketing tool, so that doesn't surprise me that when she turns in the album, she has no control over or interest in or say in how it's going to be marketed. Right, so it's right. just kind of like a piece of trivia to her 
at that point like yeah i guess it was released on this thing called the internet next right. <laughs> that's what i find to be really funny about that is that yeah it was such a big deal to to me in the world of her music but yeah. to her she's like oh i don't know is that true and Maybe? she maintained that for that stance let's say for a very long time when people would ask her about fan sites or whatever she would always shrug it off and say mm-hmm. I don't know how to use a computer. Or I don't look at that stuff yeah, or yeah. whatever she I would say. I let them do their thing yeah. and I do mine. Once she established in 94 that um, Macs were bitching <laughs> in the liner notes for Under the Pink, that right. was like her final say on the matter. Right. And <laughs> what a world. What a world. Um, it was released to the radio also that same day, December 11th, uh, in the UK and in the US on December 28th. Um, yeah. And then the single was available for sale on the first of the year in the UK and the second of the year in the US. Mm-hmm. I love a good, like, first of the year album. Me too. Yeah. The Weeknd's very first album came out at the beginning of the year. Kesha's first album came out at the beginning of the year. Sets the tone. Yeah, really does. Is it going to be a party year or is it going to be a year of breakups? And, mm. Yeah. What was the equivalent of that for this year? Um, so far, I'm listening to Shame, a, a new British band called Shame, which I'm obsessed with. Mm. And Camila Cabello's album, which is trash. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Let's just hope that doesn't mean that this year is going to be a dumpster fire. Well, too late. Mid-January. There's certain things you can count on with Trump in office. (laughs) But we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Oh, okay. Because I want to talk about some other things first. Namely, our new Patreon supporters. Um, Thank you to Aaron Smith and Keith Tomlinson, who have joined our Patreon. Welcome to the family. And thank you to Jeff Lucas, who has upped his pledge. Thank you so much. You can join us as a Patreon supporter if you go to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos. There's many, many levels there that you can join us and help out the cause. You know what else we got today, David? I can't even imagine. Contests. <laughs> I, I win? No, no. Hosts and their partners are not eligible. It's bullshit. We're giving away a one-of-a-kind drawing today by Rance Hosley, inspired by Caudalite Sneeze. There's one. There's only one in the world. He sketched it. Rance Hosley did it. Inspired by Caudalite Sneeze. We're giving it away at the end of the episode. And you might want to listen to the whole episode because I think we're going to do some trivia. What if mm. we do it like a trivia question? Mm. I don't know what it's going to be. We'll see. We're also going to announce the winner of our Marianne contest. I love having contests. So... On today's show, let's talk about our guests. Do you want to talk about our guests? I would have cleaned up and made a cake if I knew people were coming, but yeah. We're having so many amazing guests today. Tell me. Um, Okay. Mike Mayheck, he did the story in Comic Book Tattoo, so we're going to be talking to him about that. Secondly, we have Glohawa, super fan of Caudalite Sneeze. We'll be talking to her about her perspective on the song, how she discovered it, what it means to her. That's very exciting. David, are you sitting down? Are we crossing state lines? We found Naranjo. We got Naranjo. <laughs> we got Naranjo. <laughs> Valerie D. Naranjo, the gorgeous drummer who accompanied Tori on Saturday Night Live, as well as a bunch of other promo performances of Cod Light Sneeze. We located her, and we have a great conversation with her coming up later. Except for maybe some women in the orchestra on the Gold Dust Orchestral Tour, I think still the only female that's shared a stage with Tori mm-hmm. as a musician. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe those female singers on the China. China, right. Yeah. But still, great. Can't wait to talk to Valerie. And finally, the director for Caudalite Sneeze, famed music video director, legendary Brit, Mike Lipscomb. <laughs> we have him on the show as well, talking about his experience working with Tori on Caudalite Sneeze. Oh my God, our guests today are amazing. I'm so excited to get into it. Should we just do it? 
Let's do it. Well, we have to take a little break. Doing it. Here's a little bit of Arl Atrium's remix cover of Caudalite Sneeze. You can support him and the work he's doing specifically for our show by visiting his Bandcamp page at blackscript.bandcamp.com. That's script with a K. And of course, we'll link to it in our show notes at songsoftoriamus.com. Here is Arl Atrium with Caudalite Sneeze. Okay, well. It's called Boys for uh, Pele. Boys oh, no, for Pele. The single that single. we're going to get is caught a little sneeze. Yeah, caught a light sneeze. Caught a light sneeze. Yes. Caught a light sneeze. That's kind of an interesting name for a song. Yes, especially if, <laughs> especially if he was a light sneeze and not the flu. If you know what I mean, oh. girls. Oh. <clears throat> so you're looking for the flu. Well. Maybe a little something that'll knock you down. <laughs> guys would like to think they're the flu, wouldn't they? But sometimes they're just. Hachu. I'm a pretty. I'm a That's pr- so true. But I'm a pretty. Come on now. I'm a pretty rough cold. <laughs> are you still ill? How are you feeling, David? Still got a little cold. Last yeah. week you were. You said that your cold would be ironically cured by Caudalite sneeze. Turns out I lied. <laughs> Just to Turns out I lied. <laughs> <laughs> got a hot toddy. <laughs> Feels so refreshed. It's another nice overcast rainy day, which is rare in SoCal. But I'm telling you, Pele conjures this weather. She does. Yeah. So this song reached 60 on Billboard Hot 100. It reached number 20 on the UK Singles Charts, number 9 in US Billboard Hot Dance Music, and number 13 in US Billboard Hot Modern Rock Tracks. It got around this song. Look what? at that chart history. It I appeared on, in so many places. And even more. It was like, I think it was high up on the Australian charts. It had a life. Shocking to me. I can't believe that you're no, so shocked. To I me, am. it sounds so commercial. Really? Yeah. I don't know what my problem is because I feel like I 100% was listening to a lot of K-Rock at the time and I just don't remember hearing the song, not very often at least, but maybe that's because after I got the single, I stopped listening to the radio completely and just... Well, that's funny because you live in LA Yeah, I came from Las Cruces, New Mexico and I still heard the song on the radio. To be fair, I did most of the requesting of the song. (laughs) Like I would call Magic 105 Uh, and like beg them to play the song. You had it on speed dial? Yeah, still do. I have to believe that there was a lot of anticipation for this album and this single, whereas there probably hadn't been for Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink, but based on the commercial success of God and Cornflake Girl in the U.S., I feel like people must have been really hungry for this single. It's really interesting. There was a concentrated push to get her more radio play mm. with this song. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I did call Magic 105 a lot. Magic 105. Mm. 
and you'd get a person and they'd be yeah. like, okay, we'll try or okay. And they would. We they played would every play. hour yeah. on the hour anyway. I think they got or, annoyed with me. I feel probably, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Would you call in a series of increasingly elaborate voices and accents so they wouldn't know it was always the same person? No, it was just my old regular little girl voice. Uh, okay. Because <laughs> I sounded like a little girl. Like, excuse me, hi. Excuse me, can you play a can song? Can you please make uh, sneeze? Thank you. How you say? <laughs> I don't know why. How you say sneeze? Why have I? I don't know. <laughs> I'm suddenly meek and Asian. <laughs> like, I know there was a radio edit, mm-hmm. but it was not significantly shorter. Mm-hmm. And this song has a 45-second instrumental intro on harpsichord. Yeah. And that is your lead single. Yeah, like, that's it's crazy. It's amazing. But the hook is so strong. I thought it was a really successful choice the radio i was watching an episode of hannibal with patrick and hannibal sat down and played the harpsichord as oh. hannibal would and patrick i guess had never heard the harpsichord and he was like what is that instrument like what is that noise that is like the most shrill drilling into your brain unpleasant sound i've ever really? heard that to me was like was that a lot of people's first reaction to the single like what is this instrument and it's that it's such an unpleasant noise to my ear that's not unpleasant to my ear personally, but if he's willing to say that, I'm sure a lot of other people were too. But regardless, it is not an instrument that one would typically hear in a in a pop yeah. song. Yeah. Um, I have a quote from Billboard magazine, January 13th, 1996. You want to read it? Sure. Val Azzoli, president of the Atlanta Group, acknowledges that the Tori Amos experience is tough to capture in four minutes over radio, which, by its nature is a tough draw for concentrated listening. This is a very intense record. Tori is hitting new levels of the inner soul, dealing with relationships, hurt, and rejection. The big three, as Oli says. You just can't listen to this while reading a book. You have to sit down and listen to every word, which is difficult for people to do. Most of the music we listen to, we listen to for background. Tori Amos' music is not background, it's not wallpaper. Azoli cautiously terms Cotolite Sneeze radio accessible, but Tori Amos accessible. It began its radio push January 2nd, aimed at modern rock, college, and AAA stations. The mandate I've given to the promotion department is, I want the record played in every city. Let's not find a format. Let's find a radio station. Let's find disciples. It's like carrying the torch, he says. This Val Azoli strikes me as a true hero. Mm. Like He understood us. <laughs> he understood the music. He understood that, that there would be people who wanted it. You just had to find them. And they would be lifelong fans. And this song found so many people that way. And that's what I meant when I said earlier there was a concentrated radio push. Because Valazoli, God bless him, and I'm going to try to find him. He made sure that people heard it. Do you know what I mean? I do. And this is interesting because since then, we've heard so many stories about the strained relationship that Tori had with Atlantic. And, you know, the ways in which they dropped the ball I'm promoting her, but that certainly did not did not apply to this situation. Right. And you know, just reading "We Want Disciples" reminds me of the fact that they they did put up a giant billboard on Sunset yeah. Boulevard of the the piglet photo with um you know the caption was like "Thank you, LA, the cult keeps growing" or something right. like that. Right. So the language they were using was all about a cult following or disciples, and there was something kind of cool and subversive about being yeah. a Tory fan, but yeah. also a push to make it mainstream at yeah. the same time. Yeah. So. So, ah, Valazoli, God bless you, kind man. There's so much surrounding this song. 
you know, it was a single, there's a music video. Hit me with a quote. So this quote is from the Baltimore Sun. They always had like really lengthy, great interviews in the 90s with Tori, right? Pages and pages of like song by song analysis and yeah. quotes. But so this, the least they could do after she wrote the city of song. That's true. This is from the Baltimore Sun, January 21st, 1996. The single, Cotolite Sneeze, is, she says, about wanting to do anything to keep a relationship going. Knowing that it's over, knowing that it's slipping through the hands. Wow. That doesn't sound healthy. In uh, Music Week on 16th of December, 1995, she said about Codlite's knees, I'm hoping that this work is multi-leveled. Hopefully you smell and feel what it's like to be a vampire. Mm. So this woman is doing anything to make this relationship work, including now we get sucking blood. She was talking about vampirism or vampires a lot yeah. during the promo cycle for this album, yeah. right? It was the album after this that was initially going to be about vampires right what do you mean i think the the project following this album as she initially envisioned it she was like researching vampires and i think she even talks about traveling to romania so she was red hot on this vampire theme and motif and wanted to keep following that thread i guess and eventually you know other events occurred and that project morphed into choir girl but it seems like initially following boys for pele that was her direction i think um yeah i think she totally mentions it in piece by piece actually where she cancels a trip to romania where she was planning to study vampirism wouldn't you love to get a tori themed like concept album about vampires yeah though? in 97 or 98 yeah this quote comes from wxrt chicago on february 1st 1996 my point of view was not the side that won in this song I think where it shows up on the record, and the whole reason Sneeze is where it is, is because, well, obviously it was definitely malaria. It's one of those things where you know this isn't good for you. You know that anything any of your friends say to you just doesn't mean anything. Don't do this, Tori. You're crazy. Don't do this. Why are you doing this? You just look at them and say, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. Don't worry. Everything's just fine. Okay, let's talk about that. Because in the clip that we played earlier, Tori talks about when guys think they're a flu, but they're really just a hachu, mm -hmm. right? So implying that cotylite sneeze, you're catching a little a bug, a little a something, bug, mm -hmm. not anything that means anything. But here she's referencing it as malaria. And she does that a couple times too. She's saying, when we get to the artwork, there's quotes where she talks about malaria, even though she's calling it a light sneeze. So what do you want to, what do you have to say about it? There's a lot to unpack here. I have to believe what she's saying here is when you are in a state where you're feeling that disempowered or that needy even something that is in actuality a sneeze you're so defenseless and powerless against it that it becomes something far greater and just kind of takes over yeah when you're sitting there in that place of waiting for the phone to ring or you know days have gone by and what's happening that you know the way we've all felt um that that's that that's how it can feel that you've been taken over by this thing and you are so invested in something but you realize that the other person isn't there with you at all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that you're sort of hanging everything on this and the other person probably isn't even thinking about you here in that quote you just read where she says that your friends are like don't do it tori you're crazy and you just look at them and say oh i know exactly what i'm doing don't worry mm -hmm. everything's fine i have that exact experience in you know relationships i've had where it's like you know you're being destructive you're powerless to stop it, though. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or you just got to see it through to the end, to exactly. the bitter end. Yep. Yeah. And your friends who care about you can see what you're doing because they know your patterns and they know you. You're mm -hmm. still powerless to stop it. Or you choose to 
be powerless. When you say destructive, that can mean a lot of different things on a number of different levels. Um, but it's interesting to read this quote and then think back to a song like Bells for Her when she's talking about trying to save a friend who's in a destructive relationship with a man who is mistreating her. And oh, yeah. in that case, I think it's abusive or like an extreme case right, right. of mistreatment. But still, sometimes you can do that for the other person and see things with clarity when it comes to a friend or someone else. But when you're in that situation, you're like, right. no, no, no. Right. I know exactly what it's I'm doing. Like, you just, yeah. Bells for maybe is an extreme case, but still the same thing is like you can see in others things um, that you don't recognize in yourself. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe you're not even blinding yourself. You just want to keep it going because you feel like something is better than nothing and you don't really care if they're not treating you the way you would like to be treated as long as they're still coming back. Yeah. Um, from the Michael Jackson show on the 9th of February, 1996, Michael Jackson says, Tori obviously opened for Michael Jackson on the history tour. <laughs> Black or white. She says he accidentally calls it caught a little sneeze. And she mm. says caught a light sneeze like margarine instead of butter, that he was margarine, not butter, which means he had no substance. He wasn't yeah. real. It was an illusion. Yes. And I love that imagery, you know, because it's so succinct. It's butter. It's not butter. It's margarine. Yeah. I can't believe it's not love. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just love that. I love the way she talked about the song. I love, I don't know. She was so cheeky too. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so like open. I loved it. I, loved I it. love it because it's so self-deprecating yeah. and you can see right. the humor in the yeah. situation and yourself. Yeah. So great. Agreed. Um, Johann Zetterstrom whoever you are, in an email to Really Deep Thoughts archived on the internet forever from December 1st, 1995, said that he was watching a Swedish, or his friend was watching a Swedish show of which there is no record of that particular promo appearance. But I guess a friend was watching the Swedish show and told him about it, and he's describing it in this email. And he says that Tori said after the Under the Pink tour, when she was totally burned out, she had comforted herself with men, lots of men. And it was to a large extent in that experience that she found inspiration for Voice for Pele. So that checks out with the promo stuff that we do have. But I, just how he says, and I'm assuming this comes from Tori, that she comforted herself with men, lots of men. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of how that all played out and <clears throat> what the timeline was, was because we also have her talking about being involved in, in a love triangle on the 94 tour and that, you know, Hey Jupiter came about as a part of that situation kind of falling apart. And then we yeah. get sort of glimpses into when she and Mark got together with something like Motor Maids, which is definitely about him and the beginning of that relationship kind of coming about in Man Madison on right. the 94 tour. Right. So how do we go from these men circling to opening the revolving door yeah. after this album to yeah. this parade of men this lonely, she did. this lonely this parade. This lonely parade. Uh, Hello. If you've been listening to our Steve Caton interview, you know Lonely Parade is a lost B-side from Why Can't Tori Read. <laughs> um, it is a lonely parade, though, and sometimes there is no... Um, maybe it is all things. Maybe mm -hmm. she loved Mark, always did, and still loved Eric, and still was trying to find the fire from these other men and anyone who could give it to her. I mean, in that way, I think uh, whatever it took to... <laughs> To get her to voice for Pele, mm. thank God she went through that because mm -hmm. she was able to come out the other side, come out with an incredible album, and learn so much about herself, I think. And um, we learned, and we learned a lot so much about, about ourselves. Ourselves, but we did. We did. Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, it's a song like Caught Light Sneeze that reminds me why we're doing this. 
this music sort of shaped me. Agreed. And, you know, this is one of the songs that I am still mesmerized by 20, 20 plus years later. And every time I hear it, it's still an incredible accomplishment. And I feel like nothing else sounds like this. Ever. This song could have only come from Tori. Yes. Have you ever caught a light sneeze, David? Are you kidding? Thousands of times. Really? (laughs) Really? Not to get too personal, but I feel like I've always been kind of built for monogamy, and I haven't been interested in serial dating. The same with friends, really. I have a small circle of very close friends, but I'm not interested in knowing a billion people superficially. I have a close circle, and I've, I felt I've approached relationships the same way, and I say that because I feel like I was always hungry for that kind of connection, and I guess was holding out for someone who was willing to and capable of going to the deep places with me and being authentic and present and and generous. And that, as it turns out, is rare. And there aren't a lot of people who are willing or able to do that. And that's, to me, what a light sneeze is. When you're, when you're willing or wanting to go there and you're hoping that that person is too, and you're always optimistic or hoping that they will be the one, but you're also very much needing that. And I personally... T- had to learn the same lesson over and over again that he just wasn't the guy like wasn't even close to being the one who was willing or able to to go there with me right right who do you think this light sneeze is i don't think it's one guy i think just like we all have we've had this experience many times multiple times right so you think this is an amalgam? I do. I think there are a lot of men kind of morphing together into one light sneeze, one giant... One giant monster light sneeze? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, it's been speculated in the press that this is about Trent Reznor, you know, because of course... Yawn. I know. We talked about Trent Reznor. Lord. So He's never said a word, uh, so... But because of the line, pretty hate machine, people have sort of read into that it's about Trent Reznor. And so there's here's a couple quotes about that. Actually, let's play a clip from WFHS Baltimore on December 12th, 1995. In the first single, Caught a Light Sneeze, there is a, uh, well, there's a pretty obvious Trent reference. Well, a lot of people show up on this record. They come in, they come out. Mm-hmm. And we wave hello and we wave goodbye. And that's generally kind of the stance she took all across whenever she was asked about mm-hmm. Trent being mm-hmm. an influence on the record. Mm-hmm. I love that not only because she doesn't necessarily want to give anything away, mm-hmm. nor should she feel obliged to, but that she is always in her integrity. It would be so easy to let something slip yes. or raise an eyebrow. Yeah. And she never did. And even it wasn't that much that much later when she was promoting... A silent all these years on Letterman, mm-hmm. and she's sitting off stage yes, waiting to and play. And they happen to like the house band happens to bring back from commercial with Hurt. Right, let's play it. Let's play a clip. Okay. Hey, Corey. Hey, all right, I can see you right to the piano. <laughs> it was fun, isn't it? Yeah. We we did something like this at my uncle's funeral. It was a different deal, but something like this. <laughs> hey, Corey. Right. Hey, mom. All right, nice Hi. to meet you. Uh, nine inch nails, Paul. That was there. That is correct. Get get him on the show. All right. Do you know him, Tori? Get him on the show, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to have him on the show. He's a good guy. People in hell want ice water. I love that yeah. because she is so classy. He says, he's a good guy. Yeah. Again, because it would be so, so easy, easy, especially if whoever the person is you're talking about, if you're coming from a place of hurt. Right. And you have the platform. Right. And what I what I respect about her and admire about her is that she's worked it out in the music. She's really coming 
from a place where she's reflecting on this terrible time in her life and how to be better and how not to make the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. that's about healing and growing and what she's been doing since being a gun. I love this period, everything about this album, the period surrounding this album, because the material was so dark. She seemed to be coming out of or at some point still in a dark place, but she was also so funny. And she had those moments where she wasn't taking herself too seriously. Yeah. I just really respond to that personally because I like to think that's how I try to tackle things in my life too. Like there are those moments where... It's just so ridiculous that it's funny and you could acknowledge that you're ridiculous yeah. and like I've n- I don't re- I don't acknowledge that. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Um from 120 minutes Matt Pinfield even says, "Now we're going to play the new video for Cordelette Sneeze." Now, um people have been talking about, you know, or I've read that there's references in there to Trent Reznor who you worked on with Pass the Mission and there's a line in there about made my own pretty hate machine mm. in the lyric as well. Do you want to can you do you want to elaborate on that at all or would you rather not? I think, you know, my work speaks for itself. I let people discover what they want in it. Um, I've had some wonderful friends influence me, and uh, they show up in the record. Yeah, I, I hear that. I can totally find, I can hear that in the lyrics and the songs. Here's another clip where someone asked her about Trent. Are you in that Trent still close, Trent Reznor? Tori? Well, I've been in Europe for a while. Uh-huh. But friends are friends, you know. You're friends forever. On April 16th, 1996, in Nashville, she's asked again, point blank, if this song has anything at all to do with Trent Reznor and watch her get out of a pickle. They're a pretty hate machine. You have a, a little mansion on Cotolite Sneeze of, uh, you say, you know, my only little pretty hate machine. Is that anything to do with Trent at all? Um, just I think, to be- yeah, well, I think his music's really great. I always have. I think he's a wonderful musician. Um, Neil shows up. Do you know the Sandman? Neil Gaiman, Sandman, comic book writer. He shows up. So we've talked about it as a song. Let's talk about how it falls onto the album. Great. The place in the narrative journey of Pele. This quote is from B-Side Magazine, May, June, 96. Then we go on to Cotolite Sneeze, and she's still vampiring. She needs that boy blood. You can say you're beautiful. You're enough. When are you going to claim it? You're on the hunt. He doesn't give a fuck about you. He might have cared about some parts of you, but this is not about you. He doesn't want to work this out with you. Your neediness is disgusting him, and you sit around going, oh, no, 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 I've got to have it. It's out there. He has something, anything to just keep it going. So it's interesting that the girl, the girlhood, the metaphorical girlhood in Marianne has had to die. The girlhood's gone, and this woman is lost still. Mm-hmm. She's she's not a girl, not yet a woman. Right. It's true, <laughs> exactly. though. Yeah. Thrashing around, trying to find something to ground her, something to give her meaning. Needing, needing, needing mm-hmm. him, even when he's made it clear he doesn't want you. Not there. Doesn't care. She says on BBC Radio on the 21st of February, 1996, Paul asks her, the first single, was that one that was particularly close to you? And then she says, well, the work is really a novel. I don't feel that I can separate them. To me, that's just like, you know, the little flag you raise up and, you know, the crocodiles win. So it's interesting that the crocodiles win is what she said Mm. about this song. She said in the quote that you read, her point of view is not the one that won. Here she's saying the crocodiles are the one that wins. Mm. So if we go back to Mr. Zebra, where Mrs. Crocodile is tempting Mr. Zebra with her furry muscles and her, you know, wily ways. It's interesting to chart that through 
and see that Mrs. Crocodile wins. Yep. He chooses her. He chooses her. He chooses exactly. the crocodile, yes. the monster, the reptilian yes. monster. So that makes sense why it comes here. And I feel like, yeah, it is a big marker, like a flag, she says. It's a marker. Yeah, I mean, on on our journey to wholeness here, that we've been through the death of the girlhood, and now she's at, I'm standing on my own, really, or I'm just realizing for the first time that I'm out here on my own and I've never had this experience before. And with everything else stripped away, I don't even know who I am as a person. How do you think this is reflected in the artwork? I love, I mean, of course, I love all the artwork from this album, but I feel like this is the only instance, maybe in her entire career, where I feel like the artwork for this single is really closely tied to the song. Right. And that it's not just like from the album shoot, but that yeah. it's very closely connected to the song. Mm-hmm. And I just love everything about it. And can I, is this also the only, maybe the only formal release period that doesn't feature her face on it? Like this is the lead single and it's Tori from the back. Like you wouldn't necessarily know it was her right. if her name wasn't on the album. Right. And I think that also kind of speaks to the song as well. Yeah. But I mean, it's dirty like actually physically dirty in a way we'd never seen her before. She's bent over on a stained mattress with one shoe off. Something, she's been through it. Something terrible has happened to her. I want to know what you thought when you picked it up at Tower Records. It was so different, but unlike, you know, my first impressions of the music itself, I really responded positively to the artwork because I thought it was so rich and so evocative and so full of story. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could just take that photo shoot independent of the music and write a story around that. I just think it's so, you know, it speaks to my personal sensibility because I like horror movies and stuff of that genre. And the imagery here is darker, certainly way darker than anything before or after that came in Tori's catalog. And we've even got, you know, bones scattered around, human bones scattered around. Lucifer's bones. Yeah, let's not forget Lucifer's bones. Again, you could look at it and there's, there are so many details. There's so much going on these are not glamour shots it's not a fashion spread it's just incredible there's narrative yes yeah yeah um cindy palmano of course shot the all the artwork for this album and i too think that this the mattress images are so linked to the song Mm -hmm. and my understanding and my experience of the song we actually have tori talking about the artwork do you want to hear it yeah definitely This is from WNEW on February 5th, 1996. I got to ask you about one particular photo that's got us all stumped. The mattress and the the bulls are in the background there. And can you tell us anything about that one? Well, that uh, picture goes to quite a light sneeze. Um, He was malaria. (laughs) And uh, it it was a very difficult time just because... um, at that time in my life, and as I was writing this song, it's about crawling to a phone that's not ringing. When you, when you almost think that uh, in your brain it's ringing and it is not ringing. So again, you know, it's the visual representation of her crawling to the phone. Yep, and there she is literally crawling. Malaria, yeah. I get malaria looking at that mattress, do you know what I mean? Yep. It's a dirty mattress. Yep. So. And the mattresses, of course, there's sexual yeah, element yeah. too. She's been used. Yes. Um, so a little bit about how the song was recorded in the New York times. She says in an article written by Ann Powers, Tori says, I had to stand up to do it. This song, because in the box, I couldn't swing my feet around. And this was not about cutting tape together. The space in between the time it took me to turn around, you could never duplicate that. 
So what you hear on the record is how it was live. She turned around. I think that's maybe why she stood for performances of the song because that's how she played it. That's how she learned yep. it. That's how she recorded Agreed. it. That's how she was comfortable with it. We all, you know, because of the EPK, we're able to see a little bit mm-hmm. of the inside of that box and mm-hmm. kind of the setup for recording the album. We can't talk about the recording of the vocals proper without also talking about our glimpse into her recording the backing vocals yes. where she's out of the box yes. in the middle of the church mm-hmm. and on the album, you can hear the church. Yeah, You yeah. can hear the walls of the church. You can hear the, her voice reverberating. Yeah off the walls it's incredible Let's talk about where this has appeared in her career. It appeared on the career retrospective, a piano box set that was released in 2006. And we got an alternate mix of this song. And this is kind of the only other official studio incarnation of the song that we have that came directly from the period during which this album was recorded. So I love that. I mean, I could take like 10 of these for every song just to get a window into what her process is and how you can kind of turn the knobs and futz with things and how she decides like this, this is the ultimate expression of this song. This is what it wants to be as opposed to this over here, which is slightly different. Like, I love that. I only spot two major differences in the alternate edit. A slightly higher in the mix is the programming, some of the effects on the programming, Mm -hmm. but really high in the mix is her background vocals um they're just sort of really competing bumped way up yeah. compared to the album version talk to me more about the the heightened programming effects well i mean we pointed out off air how uh there's like little blips and bloops uh-huh. within the drum programming that i think were maybe pulled out entirely for the album version mm-hmm. we did try to get a hold of uh alan friedman or we did actually get a hold of alan friedman and invite him to be on the show and he declined but he did send along a statement And I asked him if I could read it on the show, and he said yes. He said it was one of the most pleasurable and rewarding projects I ever worked on. So he's worked with Madonna, Janet Jackson. It warms my heart to hear that. To my ear, the alternate mix that we got on a piano in terms of the the programming, the industrial loop, it's less robust, I'll say, than it is in the final studio version. Um, it's more dramatic on the album. There's more reverb. It sounds more mechanized and kind of phony in an intentional way Yeah. on this alternate, alternate mix. mix yeah. It sounds like slightly more mechanical yeah. to me, which I think okay. is interesting. I mean, either either way. This is also one of the 
I'll say rare instances where when Tori has gone off in full Tori speak, kind of like in the last episode when we were talking about the sludge that she poured off on the side of her house. The slush? Slush, I'm sorry, the slush. Um, where in the EPK, and she's talking about this song, but she says, you know, I was carrying around I'm this picture, picture of the this brain. brain. On National Geographic, the brain. I can, I've been carrying that with me everywhere because I wanted them to get caught a light sneeze to be transparent like this brain. And it was just sounding, it, it wasn't going there. And once I saw the picture of this brain, I come back in two hours, plus the drum programmer, Alan, and I get the brain. Isn't this crazy? Like, I've been talking about this song for 20 years, and I'm still that blown away by it that I'm like, can you imagine this song is like a picture of a brain? <laughs> but it's crazy, and like no one else... No one else can do this quite the same way that Tori can for me. Agreed. But I'm still Agreed. like totally blown away by what she was able to accomplish. Agreed. Yeah. This song also has the distinction of being one of the most covered tracks, actual released covers of this song. In the research that I did, I found the following covers. Voltaire from Songs of a Goddess. Uh, Vitamin String Quartet, they do a classical version. Off the Beat and Barbara Mindless do covers. The AV Room, they do this sort of electro cover. Uh, Mandyland does this like rock cover. And Evans Blue does a hard rock cover. But one of the ones that I've found that I love is actually a mashup. Tori Amos versus Noisia with Caught a Cold Vein. Here it is. Want to do line by line? Oh my God! Boy, do uh, I! Just get your picture of your brain out. Okay. <laughs> We've talked through the the metaphor of light sneeze as representing a relationship or a person with no substance. So we can both agree to that, right? So you were saying you caught something that means nothing. Yeah. Basically. Yes. A light breeze. Yeah. Just, it, wasn't even a, it wasn't even a windstorm. Yes. It was just a slight... <laughs> In and of itself, it can't do much damage. Yeah. Yeah. Caught a light wave, lightning seed. What is a lightning seed? You know, I kind of assumed that lightning seed was a, a real term or a scientific term, and maybe it is. But I did a little digging, and I couldn't really find anything other than, of course, the band, the lightning seeds. I love the phrase lightning seed. So do I. The way it reads or the way it scans. And I also like the idea of a catalyst for lightning or something that 
causes lightning or calls lightning down. And I'll go back to that when we get to the spire and why it's so hot. A lot of people have talked about the lightning seed being a metaphor in this song for pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I there's, have heard that before. Yeah. yeah, There's a theory that this song is about a pregnant woman. I'm throwing that all out right now. Right, You're throwing it out? Yeah. Yeah, down the stairs. I don't buy it. I don't Sorry. That takes me back to when she's talking about sort of comforting herself with a series of men or your eyes are really set on that one person and they're not responding to you. They're not there with you. And you look around and it seems like everyone else is in a relationship or there are other people who are interested in you, but you're just not, you're not having it. You're only interested in this, this one person who can't give you what you want. It's like boys everywhere, but where I want them. I always looked at you in the you're not here as herself. I've got boys on my left side, boys on my right side, boys in the middle, like where I should be. But there's boys consuming me so entirely that I've become them mm. and I'm not here. Yeah, I can see that. Boys on my left, boys on my right. And of course, in, you go to in the middle because they're everywhere. But in the middle to me was also possibly a sexual reference. Right. That's You true. know, meaningless, maybe casual sex, mm-hmm. boys in the middle. But you, the one that really matters to me, you're not here. So in the meantime... I'm just kind of numbing myself with all yeah. these meaningless encounters. Or I completely agree with you. To me, the one that matters, at least in the journey of Boys for Pele, yes. is me. Me mm. being the character. So boys in the middle and you're not here, the one that really matters. Mm. I love that. Yeah. I need a big from to me, that is why she evokes Inanna. That's the girl from the girl zone she's calling, Zinana. She needs a big loan from the girl zone to get the you back, to get your, the your that's not here, to get that you back. You know, when she talks about having access to the female part of God or having access to source that we all, all have but sometimes feel cut off from, that's what she's calling back right. and getting back in touch with. Um, for sure, I love that. Um, let's play this little clip of Tori from the EPK talking about this moment. Claudelite's knee specifically has nuns on it. More, more than nuns, it's nuns invoking this myth of the female god energy. It's really about a relationship, and she's kind of given herself away, so she's trying to get pieces back any way she can. I mean, whoever works at that point, and if it's Inanna or whoever, and if it works calling her in the church to, to evoke a little ass then you get you go for it inanna was the ancient sumerian goddess of love beauty sex desire fertility war combat justice and political power she was later worshipped by the akkadians babylonians and assyrians under the name ishtar she was associated with the planet venus and her most prominent symbols include the lion and the eight-pointed star. Can I just say I love the way she casually says, you know, whether it's Inanna or whoever, as if right. everybody is right. totally boned up on their on ancient who, yeah. mythology. And that is a reference we right. all make all the time. <laughs> oh, Inanna. Right. Um, I love that the same way Oprah will sometimes, just as a little aside, say something 
that is like kind of profound, like a concept. And she'll say it casually, like this is accepted truth that everyone knows in their life. <laughs> like sometimes she'll interrupt an interview and, and kind of say like to the camera, like, you know that in life, the whole basis of the universe, the only choice is love and fear. And if you choose love, you're good, right? Okay, good. Bye. <laughs> All right. Inanna. Inanna. <laughs> I just revealed the secret of everything to you, but it's like no big. I'm going to brunch with Maya Angelou now. <laughs> Let's agree to disagree from the moment. I'm not agreeing to anything. Building, tumbling down. So here Tori introduces I the concept of structure. Up, that preface was at all worthy of where this is going. I, I you just th- threw in we're doing building now the way Tori says, Inanna or whoever. <laughs> like <laughs> um, we'll do we'll get into this more later. Okay. Team noun and team verb. But I look at building, tumbling down as a structure. She's bu- verb. I do not see it as a physical building. Team noun and team verb, it's about to get real. Didn't know I think we can agree that that is her speaking to whoever this person is that didn't value her as much as she valued that person. Yeah, and I, that is also a disarmingly transparent, honest moment in this song that's otherwise so rife with metaphors and symbolism. Yeah. It's like, didn't know our love was so small. You can't so nothing. get much clearer than yeah. that. Our love couldn't stand? I couldn't stand at all. On my own, without you, or even when I was with you, you... You weren't well, really giving me anything to because, prop me up. Yeah. She's wrapped around his feet. Mm. The Belle of New Orleans. Mm. You know, we're going to get into that in a second. But she's not standing if she's wrapped around mm-hmm. his feet. She's bent over on that mattress. Yeah, exactly. Mr. St. John, to me, is John the Baptist. Hmm. Here's a couple quotes from Tori that I feel supports, and then I'll get into my reason why. Tori says a new musical express on the 26th of January, 96. She says, afterwards, I went through a couple of experiences fast and furiously to try and fill that ache, and I degraded myself. Oh, you know, says Tori, a girl's got to have a little excitement, right? So I found myself like some hound dog sniffing for meat, just bring me your son, which isn't sharing, which is not feeding yourself emotionally, which is what we have to do. But I know when I'm ready to slit a vein. So she's looking for man after man, right? Bring me your son. Bring Mm -hmm. me the next one. Mm -hmm. And then in this quote from Musician in May 96, she says, just trying to negotiate on any level. Mr. St. John, just bring your son. You know you will not gain strength from this path. You know you will not get peace from this path, but you are addicted and on this path. You just know you need energy from an outside source because you don't know how to access it for yourself. John the Baptist, you know, responsible for baptizing Jesus. When he baptizes people, they're thought of as his son. There's an interesting correlation there for me Mm. the idea that she's bargaining with mr saint john he also has hundreds of sons just bring me the next one Mm. and the next guy and the next guy because i need it i need it mr saint john just bring your son i've kind of always thought of being a kid or a teenager and going someplace with your parents regularly maybe it's church whatever where you have a crush on someone and it's unspoken and you know they're going to be there and you just want to see them and you're sort of desperate with excitement and need, like building up to knowing that whoever it is is going to be there. And to me, where we are in the story where she is, even though she's older, she is not much further along emotionally right. than that little girl who is just desperate to see the boy. Interesting. It seems almost like you can see the innocent girl in your telling of it. Mm. You know what I mean? Whereas my girl is completely emotionally disheveled. Mm. Maybe it reflects the two of us. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> Spire and 
So Aspire represents religious faith and piety on some level, but it also kind of reaches into the heavens and bridges humans with the divine. And it's also sort of rooted in, of course, male fertility and symbolism. Basically, Aspire is kind of like a giant penis. Phallic. Yeah. Phallic. Thank you. Yes. Giant phallic symbol. So I love the idea that I'll go back to the lightning seed. Oh, I love that. This bridge between human and divine, between humans and true power, God and us, source and us, whatever that is, she can't even touch it. She can't access it. The bridge that was there before is gone. It's useless. This man, this relationship, all of that, whatever that is, her cells can't feed. She can't get anything from it. She can't satisfy her need anymore. And again, that applies to the idea of a Aspire representing religious faith, like everything that worked for her before, everything that was the foundation of who she was before, that's all gone and it's ineffective and she has to kind of start from scratch and figure out who she is and what she believes. I love it. She's trying to feed off the spire or what the spire represents. She can't. Yes. That's what she's trying to access and she can't. Yes. Wow. It never occurred to me, especially when you make reference to that being phallic shaped. So this is something she needs and she can't have access Mm -hmm. to. For some reason, she can't feed off of it. Right. Wow. I love that. Reference back to the bell in Blood Roses. Mm -hmm. Bell of New Orleans. I believe to be Trent Reznor. Why do you suppose she says dragging your foots instead of your foot or your feet? Because I have my thought. Tell me. Okay. I've been waiting for 22 years to tell this. (laughs) No one's asked. No one's ever asked. Um, Foots is another word for like the dregs, like the sediment Mm. left behind on of liquid in like a puddle or the foots. And so I think it's another instance of just incredible wordplay. I don't think she's dragging her feet. Here's the thing. If she were to say, I still got that bell dragging my feet, dragging your feet typically means like, taking your time to do something, but she's not, that's not the character. This character's not dragging her feet. She's doing anything she can to rush towards this man. She's not dragging her feet. She's not pussyfooting around. And I don't think that's what's happening here. So I think why she says dragging your foots is because he is dragging me. He's literally taking all that I have left to my very dregs, my very sediment, the trash at the bottom of the puddle that he's made me into. And he's still dragging that. So that's why I think to me it's, it has nothing to do with feet necessarily. It has to do with the ashes of what he's left her as or what she's left herself as. That's how I take it. I love that. And that's something that had not occurred to me. I always thought of it more as <laughs> literal your feet and just like a clever way to say that. Um, I think we could look at this two ways. We're going back to the bell, which could be the Bell of New Orleans from Blood Roses, or it could just be any and all beautiful but unavailable men to her. This one guy or this series of men who are all very similar that she's hung up on are dragging her feet so she can't move on from that pattern. Mm -hmm. Dragging my foot, meaning like uh, leading me on. Yeah, all of that. And me needing you, finding myself attracted to this type of person who can't even come close to giving me what I need, but there's something about you and me in this situation that's preventing me from being able to break out of this pattern. The flip side of that is she could be, if we're looking at this as kind of a love triangle with the the kind of crocodile character in play here, maybe the Belle is the crocodile character, the other woman who's 
dragging the foots of the man and he's choosing her over the narrator in this case. He's choosing this other poisonous woman that to him is a bell, but we know better. She's really a crocodile. And he's still got that bell dragging dragging his foots, dragging your foots. Well, that's interesting. She does say in the first round, she says, you, you still got that bell dragging your foots. And then it's changed to I, right? Yeah. You could be right. That crocodile character, that bell dragging your foot. So mm-hmm. maybe she's raking him across the coals. Mm-hmm. And she, the Tory character or the redhead that's on the journey, can see that. I'm hiding in Say again what you were saying now that the pronoun has changed you've still got that bell dragging your foots but now i've still got so not only is she dragging you but she's dragging me too yes wow or she this and the other woman she is your bell she's dragging your foots and you're my version of that and you don't even know how hung up on you i am you're the bell dragging my foots while someone else is doing it to you and everybody kind of loses i love that but i also love the idea that this one singular singular bell is dragging them both Mm. because she talks about going back to that quote we said earlier my point of view was not the point of view that won in Ah. the story the crocodile won so that crocodile is dragging that bell's foots and dragging i still got that bell dragging my foots Mm. Oh my God, it is about a love triangle. I see it. Um, From Studio Q in December 2011, Tori has this to say about Sister Ernestine. She says, "At at the Peabody, I ended up training under a nun, Sister Ernestine, who would, you know, bless her, was very kind, but was a much older lady and was falling asleep during our lessons. And so I went from studying with some of the most trained professors to a very dark time in my training. So Sister Ernestine is someone. I'm hiding it well, Sister Ernestine. Now I've read a lot of theories on this and the pregnancy people <laughs> that this is where they they build their theory on. Like, this is their bread and butter. Those yeah, pregnancy she's people. hiding it well. Like so a pregnancy. lot hinges on Sister Ernestine. But there's, Give it to me. Exactly. But I think there's much more you can hide. I've had my foots dragged. The shell of what I was dragged across Los Angeles and other people that didn't know what was going on couldn't tell. I hit it very well. So I think that that to me is what she's going on stage. She's giving these incredible shows and she talks about how the applause wasn't enough. I was doing these incredible shows. I was coming off stage and I'm feeling completely empty. So I think she's hiding this, that she's an empty person. That's what she's hiding well. So we have kind of, on one level, a literal reference to Sister Ernestine, who was a real person in Tori's life, but it seems like she also represents the idea of a nun, period. And she says, Cotylite Sneeze specifically has nuns on it, invoking the myth of the female god energy calling down in Nana. So the backing vocal, to me, she's saying that's kind of like a chorus of nuns oh. calling down female oh god. Oh my god, that's amazing. Calling down female god energy. It's not her accessing the power. It's the nuns by the by mm-hmm. calling down mm-hmm. this. Oh my god. But I think she's part of that chorus oh, too. Right. Oh yeah. 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 But she needs the power of the nuns. Yes, yeah. Got but they're it. kind of they're bridging she's you know she's calling on women, right. women as a whole who have access to source that she feels like she doesn't or has been cut off from right and like come on girls i need a big loan from the girl zone we're all gonna band together 
Um, here's a clip from Tori talking on WFNX Boston on December 12th. I don't understand one thing. I'm looking at the lyric sheet and it says, I'm hiding it well, Sister Ernestine. Mm. You were a Methodist. You were brought up Methodist. How do you know about uh, nuns? I know about anything Christian, honey. <laughs> they baptized me for 13 bloody years. They held my head way down, baby. <laughs> Noun, verb. Right on time, you get closer and closer, oh, my nine. there's no way It's no secret that there's a Nine Inch Nails reference, at least, with Pretty Hate Machine, right? But what people seem to always gloss over, in my opinion, is this entire verse is to me about Trent Reznor starting with Closer and Closer, which is his biggest single, Closer, that came out in 1994. And she's saying, right on time, all you want to do is fuck and fuck. That's what I think she's saying with that line. I think that's a reference to him, this man in the story, wanting her body but not wanting her person you called my name but i can't access you Mm -hmm. i've glossed over that a little bit myself you know looking at the word closer printed here of course going into the discussion i look down and i say getting closer closer of course another trent reference another nine inch nails reference so obvious but that was never really at the forefront of my mind like there's no there's no getting around pretty hate machine like for sure exactly but for some reason i'm i want to say resistant to always making this about Trent or any, because A, it's irrelevant, but she's also, she has said so little about it that there's not that much to go on anyway. So I'm guilty of sort of a surface read when it comes to Courtney Love and Trent Reznor, Mm -hmm. Um, because that's my 1996 brain. Like, oh my God. It's like one of those rap battles. You know what I mean? Like when you do like a, a shade song, what is it called? A a diss song, a diss track. Mm. Yeah, it's like a diss track. So in 1996, I was like, oh my God, these diss tracks. Oh. You know, my 16-year-old brain, or however old I happened to be when this album came out, <laughs> so into it. I've usually read that as people have a way of, I mean, he's stringing, he's stringing her along. Just when you think you're not going to get that phone call right. or it's over and I'm I'm finally starting to heal a little bit from oh, this. Oh, that's good. They give you just the little bit that you need to start the cycle all over again. Like just when I thought I was finally getting ready to move on from this, there you are. You Popping sense up. it. You're going to call and say, I've been thinking about it. Whatever that is. No matter what it seems, I know that there's still nothing here. You're not really going to give me anything. You're not capable of giving me anything. You won't. Let me in. I like that. I like yours better than mine. <laughs> Again, that's something that could work both ways. She could be sort of mocking herself or criticizing her own tendency to use whatever fame she has. But more likely, she's talking to this guy who's able to manipulate people to get what he wants. And rent your wife and kids today. To me, that is a way of saying you can't commit to any one person. It's temporary. Anything that you say you want is only temporary. You don't want a wife and kids for a lifetime. You're renting the wife and kids for the day or the wife for the day, the kids for the day, the family, the idea of romantic relationship for the day. I totally agree with you. And you 
you know enough to tell me what I want to hear when you feel me sort of slipping away or kind of reaching my wits wits in with what you're up to. You're able to give me just enough to convince me that maybe you might want something real with me. But it's only for the day. Yes. Turns out. Yeah. Maybe she will. I look at that as the crocodile. Maybe she'll do that. Have fun with your... Maybe would she go down on you in a theater? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yo, yo. Yeah, maybe she will. Maybe she'll fall for it. Exactly. To yeah. further complicate things, I want to bring up this quote from Tori um, from 100.1 FM in Nashville on April 16th, 1996. She talks about the crocodile and it's pretty revealing. So It, was, it so. was definitely a, a cold. <laughs> it was more like malaria, yeah. How so? Um... Just being, you know, catching the bug, catching the desire to be with somebody. And it gets so in your blood that it overtakes everything else. I mean, I swore to myself at one point, I swore, you know, I'll never let this happen to me again, where um, I'm so out of myself that I crave um, a man to the point where I can't think anymore because um, I'm not normally like that but when I get a bug um, you know you'd think I was you know I don't know a crocodile just staring <laughs> at this little creature at the side of the pond going I will wait it doesn't matter how long I have to wait. This little critter is going to get tired. And I'm like, Tori, what are you up to? Caught a light chase. Dreamed a little dream. Made my own pretty hate machine. Of course, the entire recording process of this album is something i would give anything to be able to have witnessed yeah. or at least have Just like, like all the footage from it but particularly when it gets to this cotylite sneeze and she's just like unhinged yeah. i would love to have seen that performance. yeah same um made my own pretty hate machine thoughts yeah i think something as literal as i made my own album or my own debut album no i'm not i'm not quite on board with that but Maybe in in this moment, I am experienced the same kind of outpouring of emotion that was present on that album. I'm I'm making my own pretty hate machine, particularly when I think about songs like Terrible Lie and Something I Could Never Have. Whatever made you feel that way, I'm feeling this way right now. You know, I used to think that it was um, made my own version of your album. Mm-hmm. Like, not your own, my own version of your album, but made my own. Mm-hmm told my own story, made my own pretty hate machine. But I, I don't think I'm right there. I think maybe I became a hate machine. I made my own. Out of these experiences that have happened to me, and I was crawling on my knees for these men, I made my own pretty vampire. Mm-hmm. Someone who will suck your blood and do it with a smile. You know what I mean? Pretty hate machine. Yeah. I'm not really reading into this as the idea of a literal album, pretty hate machine, the right. album, but again, right. just the sentiment or circumstances that created that or that are present on that album yeah. are very relevant to this yeah. situation. Or again, leaving behind the idea of the album, just my, the way I see it too is like my heart has become a, a pretty hate machine right. inside yeah. me. Like that's all I've got right now. Yeah.
Now, when you said earlier, boys in the middle as a sexual reference, which I do see very much, boys in their dresses, in all the girls' dresses, in inside all the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also another way to read that is supports my earlier theory, which was all these girls have become men because, because they've wrapped themselves so much up in the boys in their dresses. And also you can't ignore the fact, I don't want to keep taking it back to Trent Reznor, but Trent Reznor would perform in a skirt here and there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I don't know if that was any inspiration or if that's stretching it. It may be stretching it. Boys in their dresses, dressing gowns, the birthers, <laughs> the pregnancy people. <laughs> the birthers. Hereafter called the birthers. <laughs> um, that supports their babies, the little boys mm. in the dressing gowns. What do you think? Um, yeah, that's again, what's so amazing about this song is that it can hold all of these things. And I think it does. Particularly in this case, I think they're all, she's calling on all of those things. And it's still, to me, at the top of the heap, I would say a sexual reference. And I still just see like women hiking their skirts up. Another way of saying boys in the middle, of course. But mm-hmm. I think you're, but I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Do you think Anana comes? I do, because I think that's kind of the trigger point that moves us in to Muhammad, my friend. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And there at the very end, too... Along with Inanna in the backing vocals, we also get Bring Your Son being echoed mm-hmm. in yeah. the backing yeah. vocals. Yeah, the nuns. Yes. Yes, the nuns evoking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite lyrical moment in the whole song? I really love Mr. St. John, Just Bring Your Son. Really? I think it says everything. I love the way it sounds. I love the fact that she chose the name Mr. St. John. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think mine is uh, Belle Dragging Your Foots. Foots is pretty great. Yeah, I love that. But we never we always talk about favorite lyrical moment, but we never talk about favorite vocal moment. Mm. My favorite vocal moment is Cod Lights Night. Mm. Yes. It's hard to argue with that. Night. That would be on my list too. But you know, I love the way she says use that fame. Use and you can that hear fame. that she's smiling, almost like rolling her eyes. Yeah. I think that's pretty amazing that that yeah. all comes through in the performance and apropos of nothing can i say another misheard lyric for me when i first got this because i thought she was saying you suck babe (laughs) kind of (laughs) kind of you got to the heart of it yeah young young david anderson you suck babe (laughs) let's talk musical moments i think this is a masterpiece that was totally created in the studio for me no live version comes close to this for me this is a perfect song you know, the, the instrumental intro that goes into that recurring motif that comes in after each chorus. And I love that. And she has never played it live in any incarnation that piece has not made it to any arrangements of the song and for me that's like reason enough to say that something is lost in live incarnations i think that is like the essence of the song and part of what makes it so catchy beyond just like the technical mastery of it which i think is really profound it's really great is this surreal landscape that it sort of takes you to this sort of loop this this loop with the harpsichord creating this kind of Dali atmosphere where things are sort of melting into each other and anything can happen. I see this kind of bizarre biomechanical creature when I hear this album and the the plucking of the harpsichord is almost like these strange like skeletal fingers running down your spine. What's your favorite musical moment? The, the way 
the harpsichord kind of sinuously wraps around the vocals. If I have to pick a specific musical moment, it's here where she transitions back to the harpsichord from the piano for the final boys on my left side, boys on my right side. Boys on my left side, boys on my right side. Specifically right there, the way the harpsichord again is sort of winding around those lyrics and it's, I just like hear it blossoming. My favorite musical moment is, of course, the entire bridge, and I do want to read a quote from Making Music, January 1996. As an example of the breathtaking moments that litter her songs, she picks the bridge and caught light sneeze when the drum loop is pulled out for a couple of bars. She says, I wanted to take the whole rhythm out because we're moving. We're trying to get rid of the possession. The track just stops for a minute and it goes right on time. And then right on time, our rhythm comes back. So here it is. Here's the bridge. Right on time, you get closer. Boys for Pele, boys for Pele, boys for Pele, baby. <laughs> It's hard to say anything on Cotillite's knees that isn't already stated within the song itself, and I think that's what makes it such the triumphant piece that it is within the album. Arguably, I think you could say that this is the climax of the album, and even though it is pretty far forward for a climax, I think that at least the plot that is generated within the first half of this album culminates all in this one single song. It is full of realizations, synthesizations, and punishment all in one go. The song from beginning to end just has this energy, this power that churns it and kind of pushes it forward. And in that way to me, it always makes me feel the most reminded of Pele. This is the song where the fire has been churning, love has been growing inside us and finally it's spewing, it's sent out and it's destructive in an awesome way to bear witness to. Specifically coming in off of the bridge, maybe she will. That's when I'd say the whole mood of the album changes. Like everything after that, different because everything about our narrator is different, everything about us listening is different. It's the moment of change that we've been building for, searching for. It finally happens and it erupts in a way that's pretty unparalleled anywhere else in the album. Posted to Really Deep Thoughts from Dan Sholnick. I would like to think we can stay away from analyzing songs before we hear them because if you hear something is called caught in a light sneeze and you try to pick it apart then the song comes out and it's about what you thought it was about in reality it may not be or you may just be bending and twisting it up to make sure you were right but all along you never noticed that there was a prepositional error and the sneeze was caught and she was not. However, it seems that she wants us to ponder the album since she gave us all that lovely information about Pele and such. By the way, I vote to refer to it as Pele instead of BFP because the latter sounds kind of gross to me. Dan.
You're listening to Tour All Year, our private podcast exclusively for Patreon supporters at the $5 level and up. In this episode, we sit down with Dor Dotson, one of our nearest and dearest. Chances are, if you've been to a Tori Amos show, you've seen Dor. She's been touring since the 90s, and today she sits down with us to tell us some of her favorite and not-so-favorite tour stories. It's January 2018, and this is Tour All Year. As God is my witness, she looked me in the eye with the hellfire of 10,000 I don't know what and flipped the bird like I'm not 12 like I know she's not flipping me off that, that there's no I've not done anything to piss her off like why would Tori Amos flip me off at a show right but uh, by the same token there she is flipping me off for immediate access to this and other exclusive content Head over to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos and become a subscriber today. Oh my god, there's so much. (laughs) (laughs) This song. And still not tired of it. I could go for another 22 years thinking about it. I think that's that's likely. Yeah. Yeah. Cross my fingers. (laughs) Knowing this was coming, this debate, this case of the century what are you talking about i think we settled it we decided it was a noun when was this earlier i said noun and you think that was settled on this episode yeah yeah, yeah. i have judge and jury right here hi my name is coy a big fan of the podcast and i am team noun. to me the building that's tumbling down is the relationship it has to be a noun so that's it uh team now so i'm glad we finally have it settled i'd like to see their credentials <laughs> I don't have them. I don't need them. <laughs> the debate came about because on some forum somewhere back in the aughts, someone said, it just occurred to me when I said something to someone else about the line that they thought it was a building and I thought it was the act of building. What do you guys think? And it just sparked this entire debate that's been going on for over 10 years. Knowing this was coming, knowing this episode was coming, and specifically this debate has been weighing heavily on my mind. So I made a little something to introduce. Oh, Lord. Introduce this segment and this argument. Roll it, Oliver. This is the plaintiff, team verb. The plaintiff argues that building is a verb based on grammatical, lyrical, and narrative structure and has become enraged with the defendant's insistence to the contrary. Team Verb is suing for the right to be smug and self-satisfied as compensation for the mental anguish inflicted by the defendant. This is the defendant, Team Noun. Team Noun is accused of crimes against grammar and common sense by absconding with an article and claiming that the word building is in fact a noun. But is it a building? The building? What does a building have to do with anything? Team Noun claims superiority on the basis of nothing and simply wants to be left alone. What you are about to witness is real. The participants are real people who have already devoted a ridiculous amount of time to this absurd debate. They have agreed to have their case settled here in Pele's Court. Okay, let's do this in 60 second chunks. Thank you, Oliver. Start the clock. 60 seconds. Hey boys, this is Dan Verdeja calling from Seattle just to inform you on the right team, which is Team Verb all the way. 
Hello, it's Valerie Horsefall. I really think verbs because building tumbling down, like building up your love and then the love tumbles down. Hi, this is Ashley Osterer, and I am team verb. Sorry, Eve. This is not the foundation of my argument because I realize there's a little poetic license taking place here, and that's fine. But still, the absence of an article, the fact that we're not getting the building or a building, it just reads and sounds wrong to me and sounds goofy, as if she's pointing uselessly up into the sky, building, tumbling down. I can't accept that. More importantly, we're talking about the trajectory of a relationship here. Tori herself in interviews talks so much about the sense of motion and giving this thing away and the rhythm cuts out and then comes right back in right on time. To me, that kind of tells me all I need to know or everything I already knew. 60 seconds. Hi, this is Sean calling from South Bend, Indiana. Um, calling to say that I'm completely team noun. Mainly, I was always team noun because the video had the buildings turning into people, which is kind of how I always took it. But also the lyrics um, made me feel that way too. I think I think it boils down to a realist, if you are a realist or an idealist. Because you hear the word building as the beginning of a sentence and you immediately place subject onto that word because it is a person, place, or thing, noun. Tumbling down simply follows building, tumbling down. And let's be real, you rarely see a sentence beginning with a verb. For example, running to the store, I went, or feeding the dog, I did. Foolish. And so I, I am a very much a realist. And I think all the team nouns that I've met are beautiful realists, are the only people I want to surround myself with. You want to surround yourself with realists and not dreamers? Yeah, Ugh. I do. I want people who are going to get things done. Bring a book. I want people who say what they're going to do and do what they're going to say. Thank you. I want realists in my life. 30 seconds. Hello, this is Valeria from London, and I'm proudly team verb. It didn't even dawn on me that you could think it was, it was a noun until I listened to you guys, although it's obviously a verb. I just can't get on board with the idea that it's a literal building. That is just way too simplistic for me, and I wish... <laughs> wish I could think of a stronger word other than that's just dumb. <laughs> but sorry, the first time that was brought to my attention that it could possibly be interpreted as a building, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 30 seconds. Hey, this is Robin Hewitt, and I'm team down because that's the only team to be. Bye. In the song, she's talking about the love being so small that it crumbled around her. The important part is the crumbling. And you need something that is already structured to crumble down because the important part isn't that you built it. The song isn't about how we built this love. This song has nothing to do with building anything. This song only has to do with the destruction. Where have you heard in our evidence, this whole episode, that anything has to do with building it as a verb? It only means noun. Thank you. 15 seconds. Hi, guys. I have to say I'm team verb in contact with like the rest of the lyrics. I think that she's talking about love, building it up and then tumbling down the constant, their love. From her perspective, there is a sense of building, particularly there's a sense of optimism, even if she is deluding herself or the, the person in question is giving you just enough to think that he is interested in building. 15 seconds. Hi, this is Lana Kelly, and I am Team Noun. Hi, this is Brandy Hobbs, and I am definitely Team Noun. Hey, guys, my name is Kathy Elm, and I'm going to have to be on Team Noun. Hey, y'all, it's Caitlin Chamberlain, a.k.a. Savannah Shore. 
I'm team noun all the way. I just want to say that unlike the Trump campaign, majority should rule in this case. And if you are team verb, you support Trump. That's our case, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You'll, we'll, we'll start a poll somewhere on one of our social media, and you're going to have to do our final vote where we will crown a winner. Hang on. One more piece of evidence. Oh, and this has just come into evidence. I have this boot. Eve, I would like to have you try it on your foot and see if it fits. Bailey's <laughs> Court. I declare a mistrial. One of my favorite things is when someone takes a chance with an instrumental cover um, and doesn't do a sound alike. So in that vein, here is Akatomi with a beautiful cover of Caudalite Sneeze. We are back, and here I am, live on the street, and I'm here with our Caudalite Sneeze super fan, Glow. Hi, Glow. Hi, Eve. Thank you for inviting me. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you. Talk to me about Caudalite Sneeze. Would you consider yourself a super fan of the song? Yes. Well, um, I have a I have a small bond with the song. As the first Tori video I saw on the TV was Crucify, and I thought, hey, that's cute, you know. <laughs> And I, I thought that she was cute and it was lovely. And, you know, that's n- nice. Years passed by. And I finally saw Caudalite Sneeze video. Okay. And that completely captured me in every way. Just everything was stunning about that song. Every visual, audio. And so I fell in love with her from that song. Really? Yeah. So you knew who she was because you'd seen Crucify? Yes. But you didn't know anything between Crucify and Sneeze? Mm, not really, no. I knew she was like one of the rebels and... That song completely was magical to me, along with the video. And I give a lot of props to the video. Mm -hmm. And so I go to Virgin Record Store and I buy the album. I bought the album and I fell in love with the whole Tori Amos. The whole thing. The whole thing. And here we are, you know, 20 years later. 22 years later. Yeah. What does that song mean to you? Well, it was the first it was the first time I actually felt an artist write metaphorically layers upon layers upon layers of sweet metaphors and just just really deep and i i loved it so much especially a couple of the live versions obviously right but there will never be a version just like the studio version right and because there's there's that element of magic in there Mm -hmm. so that's what i wanted to say about that so you've been a fan for 22 years Mm -hmm. yes Uh, and ears with feet uh, (laughs) how has your relationship with caudalite needs changed in 22 years um, I found myself liking it a lot more and I held it close to my heart all these years. I think it's a phenomenal song. I agree. I think it's a phenomenal song. And you're right. Like the studio version, I completely agree, exists in this sort of magical sphere that no matter how good the live versions are, it never emulates the magic. It's great. The live versions are great on their own mm-hmm. right. But in terms of the magic that was captured in that drum loop with the harpsichord, mm-hmm. with just that feeling. Yeah. When Glow is pulling away in her car, connected to her 
Bluetooth speaker. What kind of mood does she have to be in to play Caudalite Sneeze? <laughs> um, nostalgia. Maybe not in a good place in a relationship. And the way she spells light is L-I-T-E, which is a lighter way to spell light. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. <laughs> and it, it makes it seem like they're just nothing. an achoo. Yeah, yeah. like and, a nothing. I've dated a lot of people who a thought they of, were the flu. Yeah. Epidemic messes. <laughs> and and this song rings true to that. What what is what is your take on that line? Boys in the middle and you're not here. Well, that could be her person, you know? Oh yeah. It could have been, you know, her future person that she doesn't even haven't met yet. But she also said my point of view was not the side that won in this song, which I thought that was very very telling. I love talking to super fans of songs because oh, yeah, we, they bring so much excitement and energy to each track. Passion, right? Passion, yeah. Um, are we ready to talk about the noun and verb? What team are you on? Oh, it's, there's no team. It's just noun. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, David. Verb. Uh, David's team verb. David's team David, verb. you're fired. <laughs> no, it's good that the team verbs get a little bit of representation on the show finally. Team verb has never ever even crossed my mind until that thread that we we read that just blew me away and it made me look at the song even in a different light which is what a true artist can aspire to be you know so would you ever tattoo lyrics on your body from (laughs) codlight sneeze and if so what would the lyrics be i think i would choose made my own pretty hate machine explain that lyric to me what that means to you it's pretty masochistic isn't it i've built my own machine it's kind of pretty, but it's a hateful machine. And I'm going to keep in bringing in these boys and these quote-unquote men. And I know they're not good for me, but oh. it's what I do. And, you know, I'm trying to catch the flu. Wow. That's really revelatory. Um, have you ever caught the flu? <laughs> no. No? No, not yet. Just a lot of little sneezes and, you know. Anything else you want to say about Cotillite Sneeze? Um... It, it actually it set the standard for how I view women singers. I got a little picky, you know? Like, I can't listen to Liz Fair after this. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't yeah. enjoy fucking run, you know? Because I was you thinking, know. that's so easy to write. Where's the, where's the deepness? Where's the, you know, the guts? You know, Tori set that standard for me, and it all started with this song. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Glow. If you're lucky enough to know this gem I call a friend, Glow will surely be on again for Alamo. Where can your brand new fans find you online? Glow Hawa Yoga. G-L-O-H-A-W-A-Yoga.com. We'll, of course, link to that in our show notes. Glow, thank you. Thank you for having me. Here's the Vitamin String Quartet's take on Caudalite Sneeze. And I'm here with Mike Mayhek. He is the cartoonist behind Caudalite Sneeze in Comic Book Tattoo. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So let's get into the story that you did, which is really, really enchanting. Um, It's lovely. And there are fairies in it. 
Now, <laughs> you can't talk fairies without talking the frouds. How much of an inspiration were they while making your piece? Well, one of the first books was that, that fairies book. When I was first starting to make comics or even illustrating, even when I was a kid, that, that book just responded to me. I was like, oh, so I was always drawing uh, fairies. Uh, so I kind of always had this idea that I was going to do fairies because that's what I like to draw. And I'm almost certain, and my memory is still fuzzy, I think Rance put this mandate that you couldn't draw fairies in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, and I don't know why exactly that was. I think he was afraid too many people were going to end up doing that. In fact, part of it, I remember even him saying with the songs, he didn't want us to be too literal with the lyrics. You know, he wanted, he wanted us to go. And I think he wanted the book to be very creative and its own thing, you know, but, you know whether you were familiar with her, her work or not. The story that you did for Cod Lights Needs, I think it's so whimsical um, and it's a lot of fun. Was there a conscious choice to go in that direction when the lyrics for that song specifically are so dark? Yeah, actually, it kind of was a little bit. Uh, i I'm more comfortable with it now, but at the time I really wasn't comfortable drawing anything that was too dark. I liked putting humor in my work. I liked things that were funny. Um, I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself as an artist. So I almost felt like if I could at least make people laugh, it'd be the thing that I could get people to respond to my work about. And I remember talking to, uh, again, I was talking to my wife about, you know, this is a story I'm going to do. And she was like, oh, is she going to, is she actually going to catch a sneeze and like catch a real sneeze? And I'm like, uh, in my head, I, I didn't think I didn't think so, but then I was like, "Yes, yes, that's what's going to happen. She's going to catch a literal a literal sneeze," and that's where the the story sort of sort of tumbled down. And I feel kind of bad because I think a lot of a lot of fans of of the song were pretty disappointed in <laughs> that I chose to do to you know because it's it's very different lyrically. But I was really again focusing more like on on the rhythm of the of the, of the song and trying to trying to keep up with that. I wouldn't say disappointed. What I do like about it is that it's completely different than what you'd expect. Do you know what I mean? When you think of Caudalite Sneeze, in that way, it's really refreshing. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I always, I kind of worry that a lot, you know, a lot of people didn't really like that story, but <laughs> it's nice to hear that there's some, there's some positive aspects of it. Tell us about meeting Rance Hosley and how you became involved. Uh, I don't think I met Rance like in person until uh, after the book had come out. Um, he contacted me online, and I'm not sure how he found my work. He just contacted me about um, that he was going to be, you know, starting up this anthology about comics based on the work of Tori Amos. And I was like, you had me at Tori Amos. <laughs> I wasn't really, there really wasn't much of a, of a thing where I was going, hmm, should I work on this? It was just sort of instant. Yes, I think I probably emailed him back like within seconds. Like, yes. Um, um, so you've been a fan, or you were a fan at the time? Uh, yeah, well, I was definitely a fan at the time. I had kind of fallen out a little bit. Uh, I got really notorious um, in college, right around 1997, 1998. So like at the end of the 90s and into the, the early 2000s. But So uh, what, what prompted you to choose Sneeze? Uh, for one thing, it's, it's one of my favorite songs. I really respond more towards uh, melody and rhythm, and um, I love, absolutely love, love, love the rhythm. And um, I was thinking about how a story works sequentially and how I could kind of use that. And so I think that's probably, partly why I put it at the top of my list. So you went to Comic Con in two thousand eight. 
Yeah. Um, did you get a chance to meet with Tori? Did you get a talk a chance to talk to her about the book? Yeah, yeah, it was funny. I'm I'm very much the type that uh, when it comes to people that are um, famous or, or known in some way, I don't really get too worked up over it, and um, I try I treat people try to treat people as normal as possible, you know. And but when it came to meeting Tori Amos, I just broke down. And it was like <laughs> I was outside of myself and. I was going to be very, very cool and very calm. Instead, I was like, oh, thank you for so much for letting me draw fairies in your book. Oh, my gosh. It's so, so nice to meet you. Oh, my God. Oh, you know, and I was just like, what just happened? Why did I do that? And it was just this weird out-of-body experience. And she had this crazy dress on. I remember trying to give her a hug around. the, And, and the, the, I always remember that hug because it was like, how do I you know, get around this, this, this collar? And uh but it was very surreal and very cool. Welcome to our world, because that's how we all get. <laughs> yeah. Mike Mayhek, he is a cartoonist based in Florida. You can find him online, Mike Mayhek, on Twitter, or you can find him on his website, MikeMayhek.com or OperationSpaceCat.com. Check out his work and pull out your comic book tattoo and check out Codlight Sneeze again. Um, I respect a man who can do fairies with humor and pride. So thank you so much for talking to us today, Mike. No, thank you. Here's a cover of Codlight Sneeze by Ash Blaze. Remember, you can check out our playlist at songsoftoryamus.com on our show notes page. You get closer and closer and bright on time. You get closer and closer and bright on time. You get closer and closer and bright on time. You get closer and closer and right on time. You get closer and closer and maybe she will. Maybe she will. Maybe she will. Maybe she will. Caught a light sneeze. Dreamed a little dream. Made my own pretty hate machine. Boys of Dessert. Boys on my right side, boys on my left side, boys on my right side, building, tumbling, boys down. Tori did a lot of promo for Boys for Pele. We talked about that, and a lot of that promo she spent performing Codlight Sneeze. Let's start yeah. with the first performance I can tell of Codlight Sneeze. This is December 12th, 1995. She did an acapella on WBCN Boston. Here we go. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. Lightning seed. Boys on my left side. Boys on my right side, boys in the middle, and you're not here. I need a big loan from the girls' own building, tumbling down. Didn't know our love was so small. Couldn't stand it out, Mr. St. John, just bring your son. She did do Caught Light Sneeze on Top of the Pop. She did it on Morning uh, with Richard and Judy, mm-hmm. two meter sessions. But what I want to concentrate on are three very important performances in the promo cycle, mm-hmm. I think. 
January 20th, 1996, our heroine appeared on Saturday Night Live. This fire is Accompanied by George Porter on bass, George Porter Jr., the Harlem Boys Choir, who we did try to get someone from the Harlem Boys Choir, but that's now a defunct organization, no longer exists, and Valerie Naranjo on percussion. Up until this point, it was very rare for Tori to perform on stage with any other musicians, any other backup band. She'd done it once or twice on The Tonight Show. She God with Kate Tan. Yes. And then, yeah. This was also the only time when she's ever attempted to play the song in any arrangement resembling... I mean, this is the album version, essentially, that she's playing, but this was the only time she performed the song in that way. After this point, it always sounded... It was always completely reinvented. Right. And to be fair, I think the players are all playing to the backing track. Mm -hmm. So um, we have a treat for you. We have found Valerie Naranjo. We've located her, and we have a little interview with Valerie. Let's play that. On the line, we have Valerie D. Naranjo, and she's a percussionist and vocalist and leader of the African-imbued jazz quintet Mondara. But our listeners probably know her best as the iconic drummer who accompanied Tori during her SNL, Leno, and Friday night performances of Caudalite Sneeze. Hi, Valerie. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Hi, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you discovered music at an early age. You're from a very musical family. Your mother encouraged you to take up percussion. Um, and you moved to New York to pursue music. Can you tell our listeners your trajectory from the streets of New York to the Saturday Night Live stage? My trajectory from the street to SNL is pretty straightforward. I used to busk on marimba a lot. Uh, I was down in the Lower East Side one day. Somebody stopped. They ran up to me and said, we need a marimba player. Gave me their card. Uh, got in touch with the um, Tayer Latino Americano, which is a Latin American workshop in English. And I did a lot of things with that, uh, with that institution. But I met Roger Squichiro. He was my buddy. He was my percussion mate. And Roger knew Lenny Pickett, who is the um, band director. There's three directors, but he's the one who directs rehearsals for the SNL band. The next call I got from Lenny was to, um, it was in August before the 95-96 season. And he said uh, on my voicemail, please call me right away because if you're out of town, we're going to have to pass. But the whole summer they had me in mind. They had had a slot open for percussionists in the band. And that's 23 seasons ago. 95-96 was your first season on Saturday Night Live, right? Yes, it was. And Tori, uh, meeting and playing with Tori was one of the first things I did. Amazing. So it it's it's um you know it really warms my heart and makes me smile that we're sitting together across the phone line right now. Talk to me a little bit about meeting Tori that first time. What rehearsals were like for the Saturday Night Live performance? 
um, and just the excitement around being part of the band? Well, I, uh, first of all, I really think Tori is an artist who, with a, with a capital, capital, capital A, you know, she's, she reminds me of, of a Native American artist. In other words, she is not only saying something to the community, but she is concerned about the community and her whole thing that she has been doing um, in terms of abused members of the community, I really respect and had immediately a respect for. I said, oh, this is, um, you know, this isn't somebody who's glitzy, although she's gorgeous and amazing and and a fantastic performer, but there's some depth behind the glamour. And so, and, and also just her down to earth nature and, and how patient and how kind she was really, really touched me. And remember, I was still, you know, I, I had just been approved. I had, I think I had done three shows under probation because all the departments couldn't agree whether, you know, adding a percussionist was a good idea in the first place. So, you know, I, I was like a, like a little elf, you know, like a five-year-old kid among uh, the 12 year olds, you know, and so um, playing with her was, was really amazing. One of my all time Saturday night live peak experiences for sure. Um, what is a typical week on Saturday, Saturday night live? Like when a musician comes in we, arranging the song and uh, what's that like? We don't usually join the guest band. So that's another amazing privilege that I had to join Tori. Um, Usually, we're, the, the guest band rehearses on Thursday. We uh, come in on Saturday morning. So everything that the Saturday Night Live band does is is between the morning, you know, Saturday about 10.30 a.m. and Sunday about 1.15 a.m. Um, but in terms of playing with guest artists, they rehearse in the space uh, at Studio 8H on Thursdays. So... I believe with Tori, we actually had space uh, at SIR or somewhere like that the day before. So, as it is with the SNL band, it's it's a you know it's a matter of pulling your thoughts, your ideas, your creativity, and your musicianship together, quick, quick, quick. Can you tell us a little bit about what was different about uh, this performance and any discussions that there may have been that led to the house band accompanying Tori, since that wasn't typical. No, it's not typical. And I think I was the only one accompanying her out who was in the house band. Right. It, it was, it was you accompanying her with George Porter Jr., right? Yeah. Oh, amazing. Uh, you know, and then I got to hear, I, I got to hear, see, smell, and feel some of the excitement that the guest artists have. It's their shot at an international syndicated audience. And so it's, there's a lot of pressure. And I think Tori handled it just more than beautifully. She's just, like I said, she's a very compassionate person who has really stood with her life behind her art. And, you know, I always think that, you know, a musician or an actor or or any kind of performing artist brings their entire life onto the stage, no matter whether they like it or not. And in Tori's case, um, it was just a beautiful, amazing performance. And, And again, at Jay Leno. Just a great performance. The performance happened on January 20th, 1996, which was a few days before the CD came out, uh, Boys for Pele. Did you? Did she give you an advance so you could learn the song? Or how were the? what were the conversations like about your performance in the song? She did give me advance tracks. And, um, you know, she told me basically the sounds that she wanted. So we, you know, we, we hooked up with the department to, to rent the right equipment. 
and and we proceeded from there. There wasn't really a lot for some for some amazing and thankful reason. She she trusted me, and uh, you know. I couldn't betray that trust. So what I did was listen very carefully and try to do exactly what, you know, like a great Broadway musician, you do exactly what the principal does. And the principal in that case was the track. Right, right. Was there discussion that night about you accompanying her on the next couple of performances? Because you did Jay Leno, but you also, you're also on Friday night, right? Yes, that's true. And my memory it doesn't serve me too well about Friday night, but uh no, there was not. Uh, I got a call from uh, one of her, someone from from her office, asking if I might be able to go, and it was actually, I believe, something like seventy-two hours before. Oh wow! And uh, so I remember taking uh, like a six p.m. getting there at midnight, uh, getting up early the next morning, and you know Jay Leno would shoot. They don't shoot live, so we had you know plenty of time to to do our thing. But it was still, you know quick to the moment right, right. Um, um you might not know this um this is maybe as far as david and i can, as far as we can tell the only time she's ever performed with a female musician on stage with her so um and you may not also not know this but you're sort of legendary within the tori amos community that's why we've asked you to be a guest on our show is because when saturday you know it's the only time tori's appeared on saturday night live and it was a huge uh, track in her career. And the first thing you see is this beautiful, long, flowing hair and you pounding those drums. <laughs> and it just, it, it sets this image for everybody. So you're, you're a legend in our community, um, whether you know that or not. Well, she's a legend in my, in, in my heart, oh, for sure. And that's, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored that I would be the only female musician, as you say, um, it was it was thrilling. Her music has been described as dazzling, electric, and hauntingly beautiful. Valerie Dina Ranjo, you, you can check her out at mandaramusic.com, or you can check out her YouTube videos, which we'll post on our show notes page, songsoftoriamus.com. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Valerie. Thank you, too. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. Of course, that was only a small part of a longer interview with Valerie, where we discuss her upbringing, music, New York City, Saturday Night Live. Remember, all of our interviews are available unedited on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Songs of Tori Amos. Every subscriber at every level has access to our vast archive of unedited interviews. So head over there and subscribe right away. For now, here's a cover of Caudalite Sneeze by Lynn Nettleton with Kevin on the hand drum. Right on time, you get closer and closer, yeah, call my name, there's no way in, yeah, use that fame, rent your wife and kids today, maybe she will, maybe she will, Caudalite Sneeze, dreamed a little dream. Being my own pretty hating machine Boys on my left side Boys on my right side Boys in the middle You're not here Boys in their dresses You're not here I need a, a big loan I need a, a big loan from the a girl's own building, yeah, tumbling down. Didn't know our love was so small. Couldn't stand it all, Mr. 
St. John, just bring your son. This is my video. Um, Mike Lipsicum directed this. He um, was the only director that I called. I just, after I saw the tricky video, I felt, hmm, I think this person understands the hidden in something, the layers. And I called Mike. We hung out for a little, a little while. And as soon as he heard it, he started to really crawl into the space with me where it's, it's about the death of this girl. A part of her had to die. A part of me had to die. Um, that wanted to destroy the other part. So it really became a fight with the soul and the self. Um, and my God, floating like that was the most painful thing I've ever done. But working with him was pretty fantastic. Caught a light sneeze. So this is almost a sort of dream, and yet it is a reality at the same time, and I think that's what's so scary to her. Mike Lipscomb, the director, um, seemed to have quite a handle on symbology, and he wanted to play this out with imagery and color. So naturally, her perceptions of what she thought was going on, well, they're all crumbling all around her. I think that happens to most people when you're ripping the mask off your face. We're very excited to get a few minutes to talk with legendary music video director Mike Lipscomb. Mike has directed videos for top musicians including Tom Petty, Jewel, Tricky, and Sinead O'Connor, and he, of course, also directed the video for Caudalite Sneeze. Hi, Mike. We so appreciate you talking to us Hi. today. Hi. How's it going? I'm good. Thank you. I'm here in uh, Venice Beach. Ah, lovely Venice Beach. <laughs> very close. Why don't you give us a quick snapshot on how you started in the industry? What was your path towards directing? Did you always want to direct videos? Um, how I actually got into it is um, I studied at art college in London, and as soon as I left art college, I set up a very small company called Trigger Happy Films, which just which basically just me with an um, edit suite and a camera, and I started doing very low-budget music videos, which I really enjoyed, um, and it grew really quickly. You know, I had the very, was a couple of hits with Nomad, I Want to Give You Devotion, was a very big dance hit, and um, my company really took off i pretty much got everything i you know did like things like emf um you're unbelievable and my company grew a very young age you know from I think I 20 um to about 26 years old i had at the end nine directors and i was shooting a lot producing a lot and directing and then i met up with this guy tricky who was playing with massive attack i mean he's one third of massive attack and uh, we got on really well and i just decided just to go it alone. I closed my company and I just worked. I did Maxine Quay album. I did like five videos for that. And then that led on to more established artists and really the creative of the established artists. And Tori Amos at that time was very established, but also she was one of the few artists that were very creative. You know, she'd pick the directors for their creativity. And once she picked them, she would allow them a lot of creative freedom. And that's what I enjoyed about working with her. And that's basically how I got onto her. So I was introduced to her by a woman, Maggie Maloney, who was working at East West Records, which was where Tori was signed. And she asked me if I'd consider working with Tori. 
obviously I loved Tori's work and she suggested we had a meeting and that's the beginning of it. That's wonderful. Yeah, she in 1995 is uh, quoted as saying that her your videos for Tricky, your work with Tricky is really what edged her into asking you to do Caudalite Sneeze, um, that she loved those right. videos. Um, what was that meet? What was that first meeting like? Did you know what the single was going to be? Did you did you come prepared with a pitch? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know the single, but uh, I mean, I really liked her work, and I really loved her creative. So uh, I think uh, I flew. It was quite a while back, so I remember it. But uh, I flew out to Ireland where she was living. I think it was Cork, and I met her. Um, and she was at a recording studio. I arrived there late, and um, she you know, went up into a room and she literally played me the song like one-to-one live, you know, and it was amazing, really. And I was like, wow, you definitely want to work on this. So, you know, and she told me like stories, you know, around it. And that's my first meeting with her. She's really very giving, very, you know, very open to discussing ideas. And I didn't actually know that she got it from my tricky. So I learned that now, but there you go. And that's how I started. And and then how I normally work is, no, I I loop, I get a copy of the track, obviously, when it was ready. And then I just loop it up and loop it up. And I just, like, come up with this, like, I look at the way the music's mixed. And, like, to that particular track, it had a really beautiful fluidity to it. And it was, like, seamless. And I saw it as, like, this seamless fluid journey, you know, which is why... I chose that particular camera style. Mm-hmm. And then I think the creative was more of her falling through her dreams, you know, falling, uh, you know, at the end she sort of falls into a grave and at the beginning she's like, uh, uh, this sort of like follows a swan into a journey, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's, uh, that was the idea. Um, once you had agreed to do the video and it was time for pre-production, uh, did you storyboard it? Did you just have a lot of visual, uh, visual aids? Um, in, um, for that particular one, it was very intense. It was a subliminal one-take journey. You know, you can see the video revolves around and each shot um, sort of dissolves, morphs into the next shot. So it's really seamless. So it had to be really well storyboarded out. I storyboarded out every scene, but more than that, I storyboarded out the lighting transition. So mm. every light from every scene would look, would um, would be subliminal. And... I went on set with a, just a giant uh, one-page pullout, you know, which was what, about 30 pages to sellotape together with the lighting um, so the DP could look at how the lighting cross-phased with each set. And then I used a lot of um, different techniques, you know. The one Tarrierson was in wires, you know, and two, there's a lot of motion control and there's different techniques I used. So you were very um, hands-on with it? Well, very hands-on. I shot it, and I was at those stages, you know, in your early filmmaking career. It was the, you know, it's a passion. You know, I didn't DP it. I had amazing DPs, but I would do the operating of the camera, so I'd compose it, and I would, uh, yeah, definitely get all the texture materials together and do all the drawings for the set. The main thing on that is the special effects at the end of it. You know, that was done on an inferno, and um, that was at the very first beginnings of inferno. You know. Um, Flame Inferno, the yeah. same sort of thing. Yeah, it was very groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, it was it was groundbreaking. She's an amazing artist to work with as well. I mean, she's very giving, and she had to do a lot. You know, she was on Kirby wires. They're really painful. She had to keep changing set. We had to shoot a lot. It went on late into the night. I think we went through the night. You know, it was. Uh, I think we shot for like something like forty-eight hours solid. We didn't break. I think. Wow! Um, wow! Yeah, we had to put beds in the studio 
um, for the crew. In those days, you could do it. They, you know, they would, um, you know, you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> try, try that now. <laughs> try that now. That job really changed me because once I finished that Tori Amos video, it opened me up. I mean, I got immediate calls from um, America, you know, because Tori Amos was an artist in America, and that video was obviously doing well in America. And I got brought over to America. I think the, the Scott family, Wrigley Scott and Tony Scott, signed me to um, over to America, um, pretty much on the back of that video. And then in England, um, every every commercials company wanted a copy of it. You know, they wanted a seamless one take journey about their product mm-hmm, based mm-hmm. on Tori Amos. Wow. She's quoted as saying that you have quite a handle on imagery and symbology. Uh, would you mind sharing with us some of your personal favorite images from the video or mo- motifs, maybe some of the first images that came to your head that you were able to accomplish? Um, I really like, you know, I obviously love this one, you know, following the swan as a journey. There's always something that followed you the camera leads and follows through the journey. You know, I think we start with the swan leading you through these gates. I remember there were just images that I just felt really strongly about, you know, the, but the music and the way the nature of the track, the music inspired me. I got the images out of the music. So, Like one of my favorite sequences, the chair sequence, where she is sliding back and forth with the chair. To me, it's still to this day, one of my favorite sequences in any video because it's such a visual representation of this sort of Sisyphus idea where it's because she's completely ineffectual and she's being ravaged sort of by the environment and trying yeah. everything she can to stop it. And I, it's such a successful scene for me. Yeah, and, and, and fighting within herself, you know, there was a battle within herself and that's how I saw it with the torment of the chair. But with the chair, how I did it, which was a real first, is I took all the motion control camera motors and put them on the furniture and on the set rather than the camera so the motion control was driving the chair which meant i could duplicate her back and forth and she'd be fighting against herself um in motion as the camera moved it was that was a first and i do like that sequence i i do too you know it's a great sequence what are you working on these days are you still directing music videos or you you know i'm not doing the sort of to the level i was but I'm just enjoying the quality of life. I do sculpture. I do uh, giant concrete nudes that in steel and, and concrete. Wow. I mean, I, I still have my creative outlet, mm-hmm. and I'm very happy. I did very well in that in that era in music videos and in commercials. I, so I'm sort of able to still enjoy sailing and things. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and taking the time to talk to us and giving us insight on Cotillite Sneeze. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. Y'all ready for this? I am ready. Tori Amos performed Caudalite Sneeze numerous times throughout her career, and we're here to dissect them all, or at least the highlights. Yes? <laughs> I think yes. Let's That's not, what we do. Let's not overextend ourselves. She first performed this song on tour on February 23rd, 1996, in Ipswich, England. Do you want to hear it? I do. Too bad. There's no Every recording. Time Every I time I fall for that. She actually performed this song six times on the tour before it was bootlegged. Uh. 
Thanks, England. I know. Exactly. Thanks, 96 England. <laughs> did she just start the tour with this arrangement? Or did she start with another arrangement that became the typical 96 arrangement? We'll never know. But here she is performing it on the 13th of March in Portsmouth, England, for the seventh time in her career. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Still hadn't worked it out. <laughs> the next notable performance, April 11th, New York City, Unplugged. Oh, right. There is video. Let's play that. Let's play some of that. Mm. Made my own pretty hate machine. Boys on my side. Boys on my right side. Boys in the middle. And you're not here. Boys in neon dresses. And you're not here. And in a, a big love from a girl soon. And in a bay hang love from a girl Loved it. That was the first time I ever saw it like this. Were you a live Unplugged watcher? Did I watch Unplugged as it aired? Or yeah, was I that's the, what I mean. Yes, but I'd heard about the, the trouble, the trouble oh, behind, you had behind heard about the scenes. It? Yeah. Oh, I hadn't heard about it. Because yeah. you were on tour, though. You had yeah. done some shows already, or you were going to do some shows. I don't know why. I think I remember that it was Easter weekend mm. that I knew that it was being recorded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then I read about it later, probably on RMTA. And then I think that even made it to the dent. Someone who'd been at the taping reported back. Oh, that yeah. That's maybe what problems. I read too, but yeah. years later. Like, mm -hmm. I do want to take a moment to celebrate the work that Caton did, uh, especially on this song. And my favorite part of his work in this song is the truncated second verse. I think they're in total sync here. Um, this is from July 12th in Oakland, the early show. Uh, I just think this is phenomenal. Here she is, October 19th in Clearwater, Florida. This is the first time. So she performed Hurt, the improv, the famous improv from Nine Inch Nails, her take on it. She performed Hurt 13 times on the Do Drop In tour. And six of those times preceded Caudalite Sneeze. And this is the first of those six. Here we go. <laughs> Between 
Yeah, and the first time Hurt was performed. On this tour? On this tour, yeah, because yes. she's done it twice already yes. in 94. Um, here's another. I'm obsessed with her version of Hurt. I think it's so just fantastic. But it bears very little resemblance to... Oh, she gets to the point. She, she, You get her meaning. Here she is, October 28th, College Station, doing Hurt before Call of Light's Knees. <laughs> And her level of performance really, she continued to step it up to a level that became, it kind of became transcended and almost became performance art. And as the tour went on, this song, many of the songs on this tour did, but that song especially continued to evolve. And, you know, the, the z z zone that grew and grew and became more and more exaggerated, kind of the same way the girl in Precious Things yeah. evolved over time. One of the best. It became a stuttering z z zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the best things she can ever do is to sing between those two microphones. Yeah. It's so powerful because she does have such a high octane, powerful diaphragm mm-hmm. that she can fill that space. Mm-hmm. And I love that sort of natural sound. Mm. Here's one of my favorite performances of the bridge from the whole tour. Here's November 3rd in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, here's the fifth time she performed Hurt in front of Sneeze. And this is an iconic performance because it is in Dewdrop in Boulder. Mm. 11-11. Take me back. 
something so good about that one to me it's just so it feels so reflective like she's closing the chapter okay okay if you had a time machine that was one use only disposable and (laughs) disposable time machine and you had to choose between going back and watching the recording of boys for pele or going to the last two shows in boulder at the end of the do drop in tour what would you No question the recording of boys for pele i I don't know i got the bootlegs of boulder all right that's true Um, this is the last time she performed called Light Sneeze on that tour, and it was technically off the tour. It was January 23rd, 1997, one year after Boys for Pele came out. The Rain Show, live in New York. Here she is with her. I feel about that hurt and I know this is not the hurt episode but it did precede Caudalite Sneeze and what that hurt tells me I feel like she's healed with that hurt to find a jelly bean to find something sweet Mm -hmm. on the inside maybe you think in that case jelly bean is something sweet as it pertains to that relationship as opposed to a pregnancy reference I never I never thought of that Mm. that now I'm sad (laughs) (laughs) sorry David, I hate to be surprised on it. <laughs> you and Oprah again. Uh, fear and fear love is all love, I got. Hate to be surprised. So is this tally 164 at the top? Is mm-hmm. that the grand total for the yeah. drop into her? Is there, was there really a handful of shows that she did not perform the song? Because yeah. I thought she performed what when there was a double header one night or something. I thought she performed this at every single show. No, there's show at the, 20 shows, that she, 21 shows that she didn't perform in that. And here's what's interesting is that at the beginning of the Do Drop In tour, we don't have the bootlegs for the first six. 
but the first like six bootlegs that we do have don't have Caudalite sneeze on them. What? Yeah, it wasn't always around. Hmm. It wasn't always around. So yeah, that makes sense to me. So that's 164 for Do Drop In. Here we are in 1998 on the Plug Tour. Tori performed this song, Caudalite Sneeze, 45 times. So a big drop off. Um, but, you know, that was typical. Whatever she would do the most on one cycle, it was rare for her to do it that often the sure. next tour. Um, okay, this is July 18th, the first time she played it in 98 in Ames, Iowa. August 4th in Wallingford, Connecticut. I love the intro. Started working herd in again, and here's September 11th in Seattle. September 24th in San Diego. October 4th in Dallas. David. Yeah. This is from the iconic Sessions at West 54th. Take it away, David. This was a wild, unhinged performance, especially for something that was going to be televised. Yes. Recorded November 14th in New York City. 
legendary. You never did. Tiff Dallison back. She performed it three times. So much less than 45. Strange Little Tour, David. Mm. So totally, this arrangement on Strange Little Tour was totally solo on the piano, totally. which she had never right. done ever up until this point, yes. right? Correct. Yeah. Not a fan of that arrangement in comparison to the album, but my memory of the performances of Cotta Light Sneeze on the Strange Little Tour, and, and a lot of the songs, but specifically Cotta Light Sneeze, was that her playing was powerful. And on the low end, that room, she filled that room, and there were a couple instances where I was blown away that there wasn't some other accompaniment or some other instrument that was playing because whatever she was doing, yeah, yeah. it was amazing. She did... Cotillite Sneeze, eight times in 2001 on Strange Little Tour. Uh, here's a really powerful performance from November 15th in Los Angeles. Scarlet's Walk. March 5th, 2003, in New York City for the Oxygen Custom Concert, or as I call it, Blue Feather Boas. Two thousand three, lot of piano. She did it seven times, so thirty-seven times on Scarlet's Walk, and seven times on lot of pianos for a total of forty-four times. Can you tell me why we differentiate between on Scarlet's Walk and lot of pianos on the show notes? Because they're two different tours. But Thank are they two much. different tours? Because yeah. we don't differentiate between original sensuality and Tori Summer of Sensuality. <laughs> she did not perform it at all on original sensuality, and that's why it's not on the list. Mm. But she did perform it four times on Summer of Sin. Well, you don't have to yell. Well, <laughs> I'm just being firm. And here is one that you can purchase, dear friend. You can purchase it on iTunes. This is from the original Bootlegs, August 21st in Boston. Maybe she
support the music. I was one of the first to buy the box set. You have the box set? Yeah. That is one of the rare official releases that I get out of my house. Purchased. Must have a box set to enter the drive all night studios. <laughs> Must have all original bootlegs. In 2007, Tori performed this song. Um, she did it 25 times as Tori, and five of those were released on Legs and Boots. And here's one from Syracuse. So the arrangement on the Doll Posse tour was Love. pretty consistent with the previous band arrangements, but Matt was incorporating a little bit of the loop from the album version, right? Like it's kind of subtle, but you yes. can hear it. Yeah. And this is my favorite of all versions after 96. And you know why? No. Here, when she does this, let's play it again. I die. Anyway, 07 is my favorite version. 2009 Sinful Attraction, she did it 22 times. Wow. 21 of those times was with the band and one time solo in Australia. 2010 The Summer Tour, she did it three times. That's interesting because these were all festival shows, yeah. but I guess since that was, you know, a, big a single. Yeah. Yeah. 2011 Night of Hunters. This is what I regret about the song. Is when I heard she was doing Gold Dust, I was hoping that it would be songs like Cotillite Sneeze. Of course. She'd find the rhythm in another way. Mm -hmm. That's what I really wanted. Yes. Um, so I regret that not that Codlight Sneeze was not on Gold Dust, but here it is solo from 2011, Night of Hunters in Helsinki. Given that we got quartet arrangements for Cruel, yeah. Suede, I think Sneeze would have been really interesting. It's so good, yeah. yeah. Um, she didn't do it for the first time ever on a tour in 2012, Gold Dust, or orchestral tour. She didn't do it at all. Um, but she came back stronger in 2014 and did it 18 times. Here's November 14th in Nottingham, and it's notable because after all these years, Hurt resurfaces.
in the 2015 festival tour, she did it one time, and that takes us to the Native Invader tour. Mm. She did it five times, and two of those was with On the Boundary. And here's the first time she did it with On the Boundary in Ghent on September 9th. performances with on the boundary in europe yes so you never heard it rude so the grand total for caudalite sneeze across all tours she has performed this song 349 times which means the song is one performance away from being gold level thanks for playing sneeze well we're done are we ever really done though no do you feel alive i've never felt so alive or so dead oh have you have you caudalite sneeze finally I went into the show with one, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go find a light sneeze if I can. It's a Friday night here at the Drive All Night headquarters. Oh God, it is Friday night. Two old biddies talking about Tori Amos on a Friday <laughs> night. Sitting by the fire. Right. What are you doing? Mm. Oh, I'm ready to call it a night. Let's give out some prizes before we Let's call do it. it a night. Yeah. Oh, my God. So we have a contest. We have a prize to give away. This Live at River Music Hall CD that we're giving away. We had so many entries. So many people called our hotline to tell us whether they were Team Noun or Team Verb. We played only a sampling throughout the episode today. As you heard, our favorites. Um, but the winner, let's do the winner. Drum roll, Oliver. And the winner is... Shaka Khan. Ashley Osterer. Congratulations, Ashley. <laughs> 
Email us your address at songsoftoryamos at gmail.com and we'll send you your CD right away. Thank you to Shay Stymac for making our contest possible. Uh, that leads me to our Coddleite Sneeze contest. Are you ready? Yeah. As we said earlier, we're giving away one one-of-a-kind drawing inspired by Coddleite Sneeze by Rance Hosley. For that, we're doing a trivia contest. So you have to email us at songsoftoryamos at gmail.com with the correct answer. And everybody, and everybody who gets the correct answer, we will put your names in a bag for the next episode. And we'll give it away on the Muhammad My Friend episode. Hmm, what's the answer? What's the question? Well, the question is, drum roll again, Oliver. The question is, where did Mike Lipscomb meet Tori to talk about the Caudalite Sneeze video? If you know the answer... Email us, songsoftoryamos at gmail.com, and we'll put all correct answers in a hat. And next episode, you may win a one-of-a-kind drawing from Rance Hosley, inspired by Caudalite Sneeze. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for playing. Oh, it's time. It's time to go. It's time to get out of here. Where are you going? Where do you have to go? I gotta go party. I gotta go catch a light sneeze. Party. I gotta go party. If you like what we do, please follow our social uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Songs of Tori Amos. Uh, you can email us, songsoftoryamos at gmail.com. And you can visit our website, songsoftoryamos.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, where we'll give exciting information. If you'd like to support us, please head over to patreon.com slash songsoftoryamos. And you can support us at any level. And we greatly, greatly appreciate it. We cannot do this without you. And we very, very much love all our supporters. Thank you, everybody. Um, Please enter our contest. Congratulations to the winners of our last two contests. I like this doing a contest thing. What do you think, David? Absolutely. Yeah, I like a contest for every episode. The, the people deserve it. People do deserve things. And isn't life really just about things in things, the end? Yeah, isn't, isn't true love really just about what you get in return? Like what material objects you receive? And isn't that what Susie Orman always said? People don't matter. Money is garbage. Things, things. is what it's about. Things. Um, thank you to everybody who's contributed so far. Thank you to everybody who emails us and tweets at us. Dave, David's doing his daily divination. David's daily divination on our Twitter, where he pulls a song from the bag every day and gives you life advice. The songs I, are, I love songs it. are speaking. She's the fortune teller now, girls. Oh my God, this is a monster of an episode. It really I'm was. So glad we're done. <laughs> I could keep going. I'm not sure I got it all out. I, I mean, we could do it all over again. Oops, I'm not recording. Just kidding. Oh, good God. Ah, bye. Dragging my foot.
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoryamus.com.